Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As soon as we get back on the base, a gunnery sergeant comes up to us and says, Sir, it's already out there on the BBC radio that you guys have killed women, killed civilians. And then we started getting this dog pile, New York Times, everybody, Marines, slaughter, you know, men, women, children, uh, Afghans, their testimony, they're saying that we were drunk. This is a story about our nation's largest employer yeah. and the abuse of power that those leaders in charge have done. They said that we were drunk and we used slingshots. You pull a <laughs> pin off a hand grenade, put it into a slingshot, and you're on the top of a turret and yeah. fire it. They said that we did that to make it look that we staged this explosive device and that we were drunk after that and we went door to door sport killing. Literally, they said men, women, children, farm animals. And then we went back later to cover it up. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent almost 27 years in the United States Marine Corps, uh, first as enlisted and then an officer, a classic Mustang. He led the uh, first MARSOC team into Afghanistan. He was accused of war crimes and then eventually uh, acquitted. He's the author of A Few Bad Men, which I promise is not in the marriage counseling section at Barnes & Noble. Uh, he did write the book on how Uncle Sam fucks you in the drive-thru. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Major Fred Galvin. Thanks yeah. for having me here, Mike. Thanks for coming. Uh, what is your favorite childhood memory? Um, I think growing up there in the eastern Kansas, western Missouri area, it was wide open prairies and I think just spending a lot of time down, we had this river, the Little Blue River. Uh, had a <coughs> small Irish family of six kids, so we uh, did a lot of exploring. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the way America is today in a lot of yeah. locations. But uh, I really love spending that time in nature. And every time I get an opportunity, uh, no matter where I'm at in the U.S. or world, it's awesome to get back out in nature and and just uh, listen to silence. And, but that's, you know, from being a little kid, being out there, uh, animals, nature, you could always uh, find some peace in that. So that was growing up. And then, you know, as you get older and you start getting into sports, for me that was martial arts. For the, I was also a track and football and weightlifting. 
then setting it up for the military, which I didn't really know exactly which direction, which service. 1987, there was this, uh, uh, that's the year I graduated high school, and one of the peers in my high school class was like, if you want to join the military, the Marines, they're the first to fight, and that was yeah. a big slogan. So that's what drew me in. I, I just didn't know any better. Yeah. Hundred percent, honestly. Yeah. I was like, we went to an all-boy uh, Jesuit school, yeah. so I had no idea. They didn't allow the recruiters on the campus. So this one kid that ended up bailing out uh, because he he had a contract, uh, and then mine the, the earliest I could get was like a couple months later in July. So he he was signed up ready to go a week after high school. Yeah, and he smoked some dope and <laughs> lost his contract. And recruiters like, you wanted. You on his spot, and I did. Yeah, yeah so. oh, that's wild. Um, we'll definitely get uh, get back into some of the childhood stuff here in just a minute. Um, lightning round wise, what was the last book that you read? Last book that I read, um, honestly, I <laughs> I have a hard time uh, figuring what was the last book that I read. Um, well, to be totally honest, and not to sound sarcastic, my own, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and I say that because it was a life story, and just like we're talking, I I told it in Salmana. He was the co-author, and he yeah. was the actual writer. Um, he he put it in plain language so that everybody can understand. It's not a bunch of acronyms and yeah. technical terms, and so, um, but but the storyline chronology, what happened in the courtroom, the testimony, that's, that's all real. Uh, so that was the last book that I read. Yeah. And, um, but I, I'm a big options trader, so I'm constantly absorbed when I'm not at work yeah. uh, in economic macro and then uh, in trends. So yeah. I'm, I'm always reading things that aren't books. They're more up-to-date uh, economists yeah. and uh, technical traders. Uh, I'm going to take a, a quick break. I, I do want to let you guys know um, the way that you can support the show is to support our sponsors. Uh, I know some people don't like to hear ads, but uh, that's how I do what I do for a living. So uh, any support you can show for our gracious sponsors is much appreciated. And again, it does uh, does support the show. So thank you. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. It sounds uh, like it's pretty uh, pretty technical. The uh, one thing I'm curious of, I know that this was the case for me, uh, writing a book wise from from an editing standpoint, is that in each instance I got to the point where I was kind of so tired of going through it that I was just like, "Fuck, whatever." Did you find yourself uh, that that way, or, or were you able to kind of be so meticulous and, and continue? Because you know the the first few that I did uh, were, were with major publishing houses, and yours was with Simon & Schuster, right? They were the distributor. Okay. Post Hill was the publisher. Um, you know, but for me, it it uh, it's just, you know, they, they have you go through it over and over and over, yeah. you know, to the point where I'm just like, holy shit, like how many more times do I have to read? Like I got sick of it, you know. Did, did you get that way or was it not that way for you? 
I can understand, <clears throat> and I've heard a lot of people, especially frogs, say, you know, I wrote this book. Frogs are yeah, the ones were, that write yeah, all the books. Always. <laughs> uh, they, I've heard that comment so many times, and this did take, um, I was in this writer's queue since, uh, who was told to me from the movie producer in 2017. So oh, it wow. took, it took a number, it took over a year to get actually where we were dictating. Yeah. And I knew it was going to take long because I've heard a lot of people make these comments. Uh, but it, this, the reason that I had the patience and everything and, you know, just like anything and before MARSOC, the Special Operations Command Force Reconnaissance, you know it's an axiom that's given to you. It's going to suck and it's going to be painful and you're going to have to endure this. And uh, For me, I realized that what happened is is abuse of authority and it's continuing to happen again and again and again. So it's important no matter what the time or effort uh, takes, <clears throat> you have to read this book again and again. Uh, you know, the edits, uh, continually going back. I mean, this book has over 20,000 pages of testimony wow. distilled down. You know, we had to get it from 432 pages down to minus the appendices and like the foreword and everything. To, they wanted it at 300 pages to be marketable. Wow. So we had to cut, you know, from 20,000 down to, and when you read that, it's just like, you know, people, you read those comments on like Amazon and people say that it makes them sick. Yeah. It, just, it was really very disturbing, but uh, most of this went on behind closed doors. They kicked the media out, so they didn't, uh, you know, when uh, American enlisted and officers swear to defend, they so take it back, they solemnly swear yeah. to defend the Constitution. That includes every bit of the First Amendment even the part of freedom of speech. And when you put a gag order on people who were in a gun battle, we're not talking about locations of satellites in orbit, the knock list from Jason Bourne. We're talking about garden variety gun battle. Yeah. And you put in a gag order, bring senior officers in to protect them. You're moving the media out of the courtroom for, this isn't a, a couple days is the longest war crimes trial in Marine Corps history for the war in Afghanistan. Three and a half weeks in a courtroom. And you're continually classifying things that don't need to be classified. And we all know the security classification guide says you cannot classify anything for the purpose of saving someone from embarrassment. Yeah. And when people read this book, it was just like, I've had the former national security advisor, Steve Bannon say, how did this occur? And me not know about it. And that's, we don't give the the Taliban at that time credit for the information operations that they did, but this was information warfare. But, but we expect them, the Taliban, to do spin, to have a bomb drop. Be it was just a wedding party. Yeah, they just killed Propaganda this. Machine. Yeah, but uh, we don't ever expect that there's a deliberate plan because this is illegal to do. I mean, information operations, information warfare, it it can be approved by a combatant commander, like a four-star general in charge of a portion of the globe. But it can't be done against American troops or against the people of the United States. And when you are censoring and putting out one side of the story, that is propaganda, like you say. Yeah. And it's, it's against the law to do that. And when you read this book, 
there's not any bit in there and done hundreds of these interviews. Nobody disputes a word because that's their own testimony. It's sworn testimony. Uh, so it's people need to wake up in America and realize that, hey, this is uh, this is what happened. This is what these senior officers said when it's quotes in there, a dialogue between an attorney and a witness. You know, that's I was tried in two separate trials that are both in that book. They tried <clears throat> to kick me out. They tried to imprison me on the first and kick me out on the second. I'm a pensioner as a retiree. If there's any, there's no statute of limitations for officer misconduct, so they can bring you back on active duty, which we've heard and seen, and they can re- punish you. Is, does the double, double jeopardy uh, clause or statute uh, uh, come into play though? Like if if you've been acquitted, they can't bring you back in um, to charge you with the same thing. It's interesting, and there's two things I want to talk about that. But so that they can, if there's like new evidence, they can bring somebody back. Like if wow. I if I put something in a book that was false or uh, that was classified that didn't get declassified. So most of this I've still asked in the last five years, I've asked, I brought it down to one single sentence and the special operations command will not release that sentence. We're busy for five years. So there's things that if you lied or, compromised national security, they can bring you. So it's not really double jeopardy. And we're seeing this case with an ongoing trial of three special operators at MARSOC, same command. Um, one is a Navy chief. He was a corpsman. And um, his case was dismissed this last February 9th, 2022, with prejudice because uh, a lawyer from the Pentagon Marine Colonel went down there, threatened these eight attorneys. They all signed affidavits saying that they threatened their careers, that they wouldn't get promoted. Uh, so the judge, Navy commander, threw the case out on February 9th with prejudice. The government appealed it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been advocating for these guys. You know, this January will be four years, and they're set up for their court martial in four years. So everybody asked that question, like, is it? Isn't that double jeopardy if they threw it out, if they dismissed this case with evidence? How are they able to bring it back? And But, you know, Chief Eric Gilmet, this is a totally separate case than the one I was involved in. Ours was seven Marines, and then they narrowed it down to the two of us that went on trial. This other case wasn't from, wasn't connected to ours. Ours was in Afghanistan. This new one is uh, four years old almost from Iraq. Uh, Big retired Green Beret came in, clubbed this guy twice, coming in on a third time. One other Marine gunny uh, raider came in, punched him in the face, knocked him back, hit his head. The corpsman treated him, special operations corpsman. Uh, he treated him. They, all three are charged with homicide, to include the guy who was assaulted twice, punched in the face, and that was it. Damn. No no foul language, no kicks, weapon. But so. The reason I'm right, I wrote the book and published it and talk about it is because cases like these, the MARSOC three that I'm advocating for, that's currently in progress. Three men, if anybody's interested, look that up, M-A-R-S-O-C three. Read this case and like, the implications, Mike, is if you're out tonight, family, friends, whoever, somebody attacks you, are you not allowed to defend yourself with your own fists? And these Marines... When you go down to San Diego and you go to boot camp or Paris Island, they teach you a Marine Corps martial arts. And there was uh, this incident, seven guys surrounded these three, 
in the eighth, this 275-pound bodybuilder came in, punched him twice. And if you can't defend yourself, where at, where are we at as a nation? Yeah. And this was captured on surveillance video. Um, where did this take place at? Erbil, Iraq. Okay. <clears throat> wow. Um, so I guess back to the question of did you get sick of it, the, the short answer is for team guys who are blowing our own horns, it's easy to get sick of our own bullshit. In your case, uh, you know, because you were – outlining the abuse of power and, and the uh, corruption that goes on um, at the highest levels of our militaries, and I'm using air quotes, leadership, um, it's pretty easy to pay attention to and be super thorough. That makes sense. Um, last uh, quick question is uh, your daily morning routine. What does that look like? So right now I'm living on the West Coast in uh, Northern California. I work there with Tesla. So I get up every morning. Uh, just prior to market open, um, my day actually starts uh, research the night before, uh, looking at all the trends, the oscillators, uh, volume, and uh, different positions. And then uh, I'll usually enter trades. And then prior to uh, leaving for work, set brackets to those so I can uh, focus at work entirely on what we do uh, with uh, my job at Tesla. So every morning, so it's I, all work related. Yes, and and that is also you know I've done this. Uh, you know I was enlisted, went to college, recruited right after college, as a to be a stockbroker at Smith Barney. Uh, at that time, they were the largest firm on Wall Street. Did that two years. Wanted to return to my passion. Wanted to go back in and enlist in the Marine Corps. It's ninety five Clinton administration. I couldn't because they didn't want sergeants at that rank that occupational specialty. So it was that quick, uh, put in an officer package and went in an officer. Um, and then, you know, did my time in the Marine Corps. So with that knowledge, I've always had a passion of uh, doing mainly options, yeah. stock options, uh, near and long term duration spreads. Yeah. Uh, so and I know that's not what this show is about. Your audience probably could care less about. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's, I mean, to me, it's, it's all relevant because it, it um, you know, paints the picture of, of you and, and your personality. And, you know, to me, the goal is to get to know you as much as it is to hear yeah. the story, you know, because I, I think that that's really important. Uh, but just from like a, a morning routine standpoint in terms of like what time do you get up? Do you eat? Do you work out? You're out the door. I mean, what, what yes. does that look like? So usually... I'm up at about 5.30 and uh, get in, do my little uh, devotionals as a Christian, shave my face, and start looking at uh, the, the futures and the direction of the market. Uh, honestly, <laughs> I know a lot of people, they have things going on, but that's kind of stirring my brain uh, even before I get up out of bed checking the futures. But that, that's really no way to see <laughs> have yeah. that much predictive value of yeah. how the market will turn. But... That's what I'm doing, and then I'll do that for uh, as the market opens, probably for about two hours. Uh, then set brackets, and then uh, go into work and work about a 10, 10 hours a day yeah. usually. Do you work out or eat before you go to work? I used to until I sold this book and yeah. <laughs> published the book, and then uh, had these interviews. So yeah. most of these interviews, uh, which have kind of calmed down, because be totally blunt it's easier in the morning when you're making like twenty thousand yeah. dollars than to make a do an interview yeah. uh, that really 
Pacey couch change. Yeah. 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 So, um, I, but I used to do a ton of interviews in the morning because they're doing them for a lot of radio shows on the East coast, morning shows. Uh, so that also took some of that time. And then, um, but I used to always get up in the morning when I was in Hawaii. Um, there, my schedule a little bit different. I used to live, I'd get up at like midnight, work out (laughs) for two hours and then uh, the market would open like yeah. at three thirty in the morning. So even when you were on active duty, you were real heavy into trading and markets and all that shit. Actually, not so much. I had it professionally managed. Oh, I got you. Um, all right. So you grew up in Kansas. Uh, a family of six. Was it family of six or six kids? Six kids. Six kids. Um, what was just? I mean, you talked a little bit about the. Uh, you know, kind of the open prairie. I'm assuming pheasant and duck hunting was probably part of uh, part of your childhood, or no? No, no? not really. Um, growing up around the river, a lot of outside rural stuff. What, if you could kind of uh, summarize what what growing up in Kansas, and then ultimately what uh, uh, what the inspiration was for joining. Um, I mean, because if you didn't really know much about it and and what have you, what I'm, I'm curious as to as, as you got older, what uh, what that looked like. Yes, uh, so. I did hunt, but that was not my uh, forte. I had a compound bow, crossbow. I really enjoyed that. Uh, and applying the technical aspects of shooting, uh, both with compound bow and a crossbow. Um, but at age 10 years old, and my mom, she used to be a travel planner for this uh, large nationwide uh, travel agency. And uh, she put together all these tour packages She'd be the, she was the vice president of operations. So she took us to a lot of these places and they would have these guides who would make it so descriptive and, you know, colorful. They paint this picture and on the trip that we took to the East coast, uh, battlefields for the civil and revolutionary wars, these people truly made it come alive. And I'd never seen or heard anything like that in the school classroom yet where people were actually dying and where they'd literally cut off the garment you know, put whiskey down the guy's neck and start sawing off limbs. And uh, you're, you're hearing stories like this in battles of you know, Yorktown and then in the Civil War and like Gettysburg, and it just was shocking. So that uh, stirred and hit a nerve in my heart so much. I was like, I knew I wanted to do something of that nature uh, from the age of 10 years old. And like any 10-year-old kid, you go back home and, you know, that's in the brain, but you're, I wasn't the kid wearing camouflage and, um, we, I was just, you know, playing sports, a lot of neighbor kids, football, basketball, wrestling, and then, uh, playing in the lakes, river, uh, stuff like that up until high school age. And I, there, the sports became very competitive. The Jesuit school we went to, uh, I realized, especially retiring from the Marines and going back there, I hadn't going back to any of these reunions and like 30 years later, I realized this was because the commitment of those coaches, here's these guys that are showing up at seven o'clock in the morning teaching it's game time. They're teaching. And then all those guys who weren't Jesuit priests, they were also coaches. So they'd coach until they'd have like a 12 hour day and they go home and they'd have to prepare, you know, grade tests, prepare the lesson plan. And it's just, it really shocked me and some of those guys were still there like 30 years later yeah coach severino and these guys it was just shocking i realized how privileged 
uh, what a privilege that was to serve or to be a student there with guys that went on, played in the NFL, uh, so many uh, academically successful and successful in business and all kinds of professions, and it really changed me. That instilled the discipline in me, and that Catholic education put in my brain. They had uh, mottos, uh, Septina and Christo, wisdom in Christ, uh, another one, eight, ad majorium gloriam dei, uh, for the greater glory of God, and then uh, men for others. And so we were raised in this mindset, uh, especially as a, a kid, where there wasn't the distractions of girls in the classroom. Of It was uber, ultra-competitive sports, like a gladiator academy. And it was there, there was no distractions. It was, and these coaches were completely committed and dedicated. So I, wow. what, really what town was this in? This was right on the border of Kansas, Missouri, and Kansas City. Oh, okay. The school was in Kansas City, Missouri, called Rockhurst High School. Wow. Um, was there a main sport that you that you played in high school that you kind of focused on, or did you play all three of those? Uh, football and track were the main. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and you uh, you mentioned hunting with a bow and, and not doing pheasant and duck. What uh, were you hunting deer with a bow or mainly little rabbits? Oh, rabbits. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then when when you got that spot for uh, for the Marine Corps. Uh, from your buddy was that right at right out of high school or, or was yes. uh, yeah week after graduating yeah um what, what was the the experience showing up uh in enlisted boot camp for the marine corps comparative to what you thought it was going to be was it a culture shock or was it uh no. what you thought so people probably seen these videos of uh drone instructors yelling and hazing you kind of I, I didn't have any military background, nobody in my family. Was, so, But you kind of knew this is an act. But some people just weren't prepared, and they were, like, panicking. These guys were screaming and yelling, and it's intense. Like, uh, and our coaches weren't, like, yelling in your face. They just expect – they demanded so much. So, but that preparation was phenomenal physically, mentally. Um, boot camp was – I won't say enjoyable, but it was physically it wasn't challenging as other things I had done. Um, but I, I really loved it because they, you cover some very, very basics in Marine boot camp, the physical fitness, knowledge, and then you get to go at that time do like two weeks out in the field and two weeks on the rifle range. And, you know, for, for a kid, and I'd been around weapons, but that was, uh, I thought it was very good entry-level basic training and then you get out in the uh, station out in Camp Pendleton there was very a lack of commitment I thought you know there's guys uh, a mixed bag you know just in the regular and that's what eventually drove me like right before Desert Storm I was eating there in the chow hall and a kid that I went to high school with and he left our private school after his first year but uh, he was at first recon battalion and he's like hey uh you should come over to our barracks. So I was hanging out with him uh, for a couple nights, and I took the in-dock. This is right before we were deploying to Desert Storm, and I was like 20 years old, didn't have any idea of the politics that I would, who I'd piss off. And then my executive officer, who, let's just call him well-nourished. Some, <laughs> some phrases is fat, scare people these days, but. Not here. He, yeah, he was a heavy, heavy drop. Anyway, he really resented that I went and did this, even though I had permission from our platoon sergeant and our company gunny. He, he was like, 
you know, those are glorified grunts and just a hater. And I'm sure a lot of listeners have had people in their careers try to, you know, keep them down, keep them down. And so I was kind of ridiculed, labeled as disloyal that I was trying to get out of deployment. It wasn't, I was, I took the NDOC, I passed it and I wanted to go over, over that unit, even after our deployment, which we went over to desert storm, very, very, uh, uneventful from what you're contemplating as combat. And it's probably good because, uh, some of our leaders, you know, it's just that we suck less is what they yeah. said. Uh, we didn't have all this technology that we have now, like thermals and night vision goggles. That was very rare to have uh, proliferated where every person has it now. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of mistakes, but uh, that's one thing that I think people have examined over the years. Uh, other foreign services is the shock and awe of how America coordinated aviation power, air ordnance, and uh, yeah. really were able to destroy using precision guided munitions, uh, so much of that armor within like 46 to 96 hours. It was, we decimated uh, armored brigades and shattered uh, the third largest military in the world at that time. Yeah. So, I mean, that was eye opening for me. Good experience. Came back. I couldn't, still couldn't, uh, wasn't allowed to go to recon, so I got out. And then that's what led me over to, um, Went to San Diego City College and went up to, uh, uh, did was there for a year. I had a ton of credit from our private Jesuit school, and then I went up to San Diego City College, went up to uh, Cal State San Marcos, just south of Camp Pendleton. I graduated from there after being on campus there for a year. What did you graduate in? I have, like most infantry officers in the Marines, I have a history degree <laughs> and a social <laughs> science degree. Yeah. So, uh, which I was really surprised that somebody would recruit. And I would, I wanted to go right back in the Marines. This girl who I was dating, she wanted to have nothing. Oh, my dad was a Marine. He, who was a World War II Marine. And so I w made a really bad call. And uh, <laughs> I thought, well, why not just give it a try and listen to these recruiters who were recruiting right off the campus too. And they were mentioning all this, you know, what people were making, yeah. whether it was true or not. I don't, but I, I went that route. First started with this uh, penny stock firm down in La Jolla. Um, found out real quick that it was uh, not no Wolf uh, of Wall Street. It, it was <laughs> it was kind of like uh, a sweatshop, yeah. more akin to I won't mention the name of the firm, but it was sort of like a what is it the boiler room? Yeah, if anybody's seen that one, it's yeah. uh, and then um, quickly pivoted to Smith Barney, which at that time was the largest firm by amount of assets on. On Wall Street and great research firm, uh, awesome experience. And then uh, just remember getting off the bus uh, there in Wall Street and you know going through their professional uh, training program. Great, unbelievable experience. It's lasted and paid dividends over the years since. And then, uh, but after two years, the best time that I would have as a broker wasn't like making money for people. I actually like, you know, you're dealing with people with high net worth. So they're usually in their sixties and they don't want to take any risk. Uh, so it was a lot of convincing for me and, and the people at the firm were like, Hey, Fred and two mentors, one, they're both Marines. One had been in since world war two, since he wow. finished world war two, the other since Vietnam. And they said, I know you came from the West coast, but this big warehouse, that uh, 
sells hardware supplies, is Home Depot and high dollar coffee. Those are fads. At Starbucks, whatever it is, they won't be around. And if days go south and somebody litigates against you, the firm, because the firm doesn't cover it, they don't, analysts don't analyze those stocks, you're going to be out of here. Um, but I, I just saw firsthand what was going on with those companies and their expansion plan. And that's one of the main reasons why I'm at Tesla now. I see the same thing. It's the explosive type of growth that it's in an industry that is going to expand beyond your imagination. Uh, but uh, I enjoyed uh, realizing all these things in the, in the equity markets. Some of the risk of adverseness wasn't so hot, but then the best time is when somebody would call on the phone I'd served with and they, hey, we're doing this, this, and this. And that's what I, I knew. Like, I've got a passion. I still want to do that at that age of my life. And uh, with a gal out of the picture, you know, I signed right up and became an officer. Uh, I would like to take a real quick break and talk to you about uh, MyBookie. I want you to uh, go to MyBookie.com and use my promo code MikeDrop, uh, which you'll instantly get a deposit bonus up to $1,000. Remember to use my code MikeDrop and bet with me only at MyBookie. Primarily, the only way watching these fights could get any better is to get paid doing it, and MyBookie makes that a possibility. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with MyBookie. So how, how many years did you do the, do that for? Uh, so broker for two years, two years. So how, how old were you when you went back in? Around 25, 25. Yeah. Uh, all right. So you go back in, what, what was that process like actually getting back in and where'd you go and yeah. how did that work? So at 25, there's a huge, they actually didn't sign the budget, which delayed. So they said, you're going to report this date in October and we got to push back a couple of weeks because they didn't sign the budget. Uh, but they sent us to Quantico, Virginia, where all the officers go. And um, since I wasn't from the academy, I went to the officer candidate school. So it was a 10-week long winter course, enjoyable there in northern Virginia to play around in the snow. And it is actually a, a good challenge. Yeah, uh, Really good Americans from all over the, the world. And then uh, after that course, you get commissioned as a second lieutenant, stay there in uh, – Quantico for the basic officer course. And that's a six month program where they teach you the basic fundamentals of how they say to be an infantry platoon commander, but I wouldn't say that's inaccurate. It's, it's just the very fundamentals of offense, defense and patrolling, how to walk your way around smartly in the woods or shouldn't use the word smartly. After that, I was during that time, you, you request, Hey, here's what I'd like to do in the military infantry tanks blah 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 uh i chose infantry was actually selected as infantry officer and then you stay there for another 10-week uh, program the infantry officer course and that is a very good entry level for infantry officers you come out very knowledgeable and very aggressive at that time i i don't know what it's like at that same course right now i'd say it's still probably a gut check but uh it was great in those, I'm actually going to be meeting somebody here in Dallas, uh, one of the infantry officer guy who I spent that whole first year with. Um, but really good quality guys that end up, you know, going into the Marine infantry. And that's what a lot of people from here in the heartland, uh, middle of America, that really do want to serve their country. But a blend from all across the country too. Uh, but for the most part, those guys, they're – 
they're very committed. Uh, and it's mixed bag. Some don't have the athletic experience and leadership experience, and they didn't. A lot of them hadn't been in the military previously. So, but that was good. And from there, I went back out to the West Coast and Camp Pendleton, uh, infantry platoon commander, and uh, did that for two years before with a deployment to the Middle East, and then uh, was assigned to Fifth Force Recon, which is a before MARSOC stood up, that was the elite units of the Marine Corps. We have East Coast, West Coast, and one in Okinawa, uh, these little companies. Uh, so total actual operators, 300 in the whole, in actually platoons. There's a few more different jobs and everything, but in actual platoons, you got more on paper, but we didn't water it down. So even though they had six platoons, you'd, they'd man five on each coast and three over in Japan. And uh, so I was a platoon commander over there for just shy of three years in Okinawa. Um, before you go past that, the uh, that deployment that you did to the Middle East, did, did you guys do anything on that deployment? We thought we would. Uh, what year time frame was that? So 98. So they kicked the UN weapons inspector, the NATO, yeah, UN weapons inspectors out of Iraq. And so we deployed on ships a month early. It was a big scare operation. Uh, I think it was Desert Strike. So they thought this is going to be a desert storm again. So we push up on the uh, Kuwait-Iraq border, uh, and then it was uneventful. So we started training. Yeah, <laughs> training. Got back on the ship and hit a couple ports on the way home. Yeah. Um, so when you when you uh, moving back to the Okinawa experience. Um, what was that like uh, being uh, with the force force recon groups prior to it being MARSOC? Uh, so having been assigned to these, I was in a couple different force recon companies and, uh, and then comparing that to what Marine Raiders are now, uh, lots of similarities, lots of differences, uh, but going through the, you know, a recon pipeline, the, that initial, force reconnaissance training with the cadre of, it was just non-commissioned officers. So a few corporals, but mainly sergeants, and you're just out in a jungle and in the ocean, you know, for your, your training. And they are just, some people would call it hazing. There was one other officer going through there and he's like, hey, this is hazing. And I was like, this has been going on for a lot <laughs> longer than you. You just better shut your mouth <laughs> That's and, awesome. and suck it up. Uh, and it's, it was weird because I was nursing this hamstring pull through the whole entire thing. And it's a, it was good, solid gut check. The biggest challenge physically I have ever had in the Marine Corps. Um, and that's kind of, you know, I've seen the people that didn't do that, especially they get promoted all the way up and talking general officers. And then those general officers, there's a few like General Mattis that talk tough. And it's like, but you never had the guts sure you saw it in mm -hmm. naval special warfare like the or these guys that bomb out or quit or ring out but they didn't have the guts to stick through something or even darken the doorstep and and try out yeah because as an infantry officer until you're promoted to major so your first 10 years you could go over there but you didn't even have the guts to try and but anyway that was a phenomenal challenge and it really it backs so many people away from even trying out because, you know, there's just this kind of like psychological warfare going on. Like, Hey, that is just, a, it's a nasty 
just the first day in doc to start the training is a kick in the junk. Uh, and it is, and, but the training is phenomenal. And then from there, uh, once, uh, became a platoon commander at a fifth force recon in Okinawa, like the day after finishing, I remember they pulled me out of the field, uh, so I could shave my face, get oriented because the next day and they, everybody came back from the field. We had a little graduation. But the next morning, we were on a plane flying over to Korea, uh, to Pohong in South Korea, training with the Republic of Korea Special Recon Battalion, um, 30-day patrolling package in the mountains in the wintertime. So it was, it was just one thing after the next. I got came back, trip to Thailand, and our platoon was just, we did 16 of these off-island exercises. And I know uh, as far as officers, in comparison, like SEALs, uh, Green Berets, uh, only unless you're some someone fortunate son like the Green Berets that are stationed in Okinawa or those who are over in Germany and you're, you're living over there and you're able to go to these countries that I think they have 87 exercises at that time a year and they you have three, four, three competitions. So we were just jumping on exercise and training with units you know, the Australian commandos, uh, Filipino Marines, uh, just a lot of unbelievable training opportunities in the most diverse environments. Did, uh, as far as all of the different groups that you worked with, uh, which one stands out as being uh, the best, most competent, or, or ones that uh, you guys had the most respect for after after working with them? Um, I would say that Tier one Army Special Operations units were, uh, and I've, I've worked with the Tier one Navy, and uh, all of them. And then I guess from from outside the U.S. Okay, it would uh, most likely be the Special Air Service, and uh, also ones that didn't have the same amount of material resourcing, like uh, the British and the Australian commandos. Uh, they truly did more with less and they, they have such awesome leadership, you know, just like some of their leadership traits of optimism during adversity. I mean, that's not something they do through a gut check of their initial training, but like they just have this mindset that it's a matter of it's going to suck. Like this is why we're here. Yeah. You have to enjoy this stuff, like expect it. And so I do it always. And, uh, after the expo getting exposed to their leadership, breed that into our own, like, Hey, you know, plan before we ever go out, you know, build this into your plan that it, this is going to go wrong. This contingency this is going to suck. And you as a leader have to visualize and war game before you ever go out there that, uh, your leader has to accept loss, yeah. personal loss, team loss. So a bunch of, uh, Winston Churchill juniors running around there. They did. The of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so on the transverse, who was the shittiest group that you worked with? Wow. <laughs> well, that's that's very interesting. The um, being stationed in Okinawa, and I was stationed over there twice, total of six and a half years. The first time, you know, they have uh, infantry battalions that will go over there for six months at a time, and when you're there for three years, and there's four infantry battalions on deck, so over four years, you're seeing twenty four units. 
So you see a good swath. And I know I'll have haters and I don't really care, but this is my, what I observed is the worst units that performed uh, across the 27 years, like a month shy of that I served in the Marines, were units from the 2nd Marine Division in the East Coast. And I don't say that against the frontline foot soldiers, those Marines in the trenches. I say that mainly because the officers... Um, it's a diff different socioeconomic plan. Like in California, most guys could have a girlfriend, but they couldn't really afford to have this house. And But on the East Coast, they did. They, they would give you all this stuff that makes you want to go home and take care of that. And it's not all, not all units were like that. Not, I served on the East Coast a couple of times too. Um, the forestry recon units weren't necessarily like that. Uh, but uh, a lot of those guys... Uh, they'll come down there equipped with a wife and they, get, they can actually afford a house in eastern coastal North Carolina. And then uh, they're just not in the field as much. The weather isn't as conducive. They're not as well trained and disciplined. That's an interesting uh, lesson learned as far as kind of the big picture logistics of managing warfighters uh, that, that could be taken away from that. Uh, I guess again, I was I was curious about uh, what foreign force was the shittiest, but okay, I didn't want to interrupt uh, you talking shit about the Second Marine uh, Division. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, uh, it has to be the Jordanians, and yeah. some of that uh, we got into. It's just their cultural stuff. It's a little X-rated. Yeah, literally. Yeah, no, and, so uh, I, I would say the same thing. Everybody I worked with, they were the worst. Yeah, they were <clears throat> obese, and uh, the, some of their cultural things were just. Yeah, I, I don't even really want to get yeah. personally get into it. It's yeah, just no, that I bad. Yeah, the, I mean the the incompetency was uh, was surprising. Even though you know, I've worked, I'm sure we we've both worked with a lot of groups that you were like, holy shit. <clears throat> um, we had a guy that actually, I think he died. I, they carted him off, and, and we never saw him again. But we went on a on a dive, and they had like all this brand new, uh, you know, Drager equipment and and had no idea how to use it and, and so we did this uh, very very simple you know uh couple th three or four leg dive um you know just a very very simple combat swimmer you know practice op or whatever and, and one guy had uh like an age or, or something happened where you know he fucking came up and was unconscious and they threw him in a boat and drove him off we never saw him again i don't know what the fuck happened to him <laughs> They were a mess. They were a huge mess. But um, all right, so you spent you said six and a half years in Okinawa on two separate two both. separate. Uh, so the, after the first time you're there, where did you go after that? Then they sent me to Yuma, Arizona. And, oh, that's uh, fun. A lot of guys like yourself probably thinking, oh, you're on the free fall committee. So I wasn't. So the Marine Corps they offered me two choices, and I was trying to. One of my big mentors, he said, Fred, you want to? He had been. Uh, exchange officer with the Dutch Royal Marine Commandos. He was like, you, you really want to try to get a, one of these two jobs as an officer. One was with the British Royal Marine Commandos, one was Dutch Royal Marine Commandos. He goes, try to get one of those jobs. And those were open in 2002. The officer assignments guy approved my extension to stay in Okinawa until uh, 2002. And then uh, the dirt bag, and he's this guy still in circulation, true scumbag. Uh, he took that away. He, he reneged. I mean, this is something you have to sign and they approve. And, but he had this hot fill list. And this guy was, 
his leadership style was uh, max efficiency for himself. And he's like, well, you got two choices. You're going to go to the headquarters Marine Corps there in the Pentagon. And as a captain, that's some people like, jump on that kind of stuff. But uh, I didn't like these coasts. I didn't want anything to do with the Pentagon or administrative uh, being somebody's bitch boy. <laughs> and then the other job was in Yuma and I didn't really know what that was. And they said, what's with the air wing? And I'm like, man, these are two shitty choices. <laughs> and, um, but yeah. I, so I asked a couple people who were the mentors on the group of ships that we deployed, both were infantry officers, the commanding officer of the Marine Expeditionary Unit and his operations officer. So Colonel and Lieutenant Colonel like, that's an easy choice. Like, Hey, look, the, Marine Corps has their version of Top Gun or the Air Force's red flag out in Yuma. And it's not just air to air, it's air to air and air to ground. So they bring in J Stars, all these massive joint platforms, and you do these, you build up to do these unbelievable night raids, you know, helicopter uh, infantry unit lands between a company, they've even had battalions. Reconnaissance is supporting, you have um, artillery, mortars. You have rotary wing attack helicopters. You have fixed wing uh, fighters and attack. You have drones. So all this is going on in like an hour long raid on the objective. And and I'll say, I got out there August of two thousand one to be an instructor. So the infantry and reconnaissance instructor. There, there's three infantry officers. At that time, the Marine Corps didn't have a reconnaissance officer assigned, so they just took them from you. You were an infantry officer go through the training and you're still an infantry officer. That was the only actual primary MOAT, the primary job that I had infantry, although I spent most of my time in force recon and, and Marine Raiders. But, um, so I go out there, uh, and it was, it was a kick in the nuts because morale wise, the month after September 11th happened. And so I'm sitting at this aviation command, one of the only single guys, these are all married um, pilots. And usually in the Marine Corps, there's air and there's ground. And so we're the knuckle draggers and they are the, the fly boys in two different mindsets, two different cultures. Uh, and I did begin to learn a lot of respect, but originally I was like, these guys are all married. It's, it was like a, I was in a different organization from like in Okinawa my platoon sergeant, he would not hire, he would not bring any recon Marines in the platoon that were married. Oh, wow. So that's why we were able to continue to just deploy and train all over. Now I'm in this place where I'm, there's one other single guy. And so on the weekends, we would go to Vegas and San Diego and <laughs> there's nothing to do in Yuma, but yeah. I would put on these uh, close air support packages, big, huge aviation live fire drops out in the Chocolate Mountain ranges, out out by Nyland yeah. and then out in uh we had this urban target complex called Yodaville. Uh, you can get within like 300 yards of the targets. Uh, they're coming in with inert, but uh, firing rockets and 20 millimeter. Uh, but it's awesome because you're, I'd coordinate. I didn't have anything to do as a single guy. So in between classes, the Germans, they have their rag. They, you know, they have uh, tornadoes, uh, bring in Dutch F 16s. So we'd have air force F U.S. Air Force F-16s, Air Force A-10s, and I would uh, work some drug deals with my buddies to bring out mortars. And if I could bait, you know, guys to do mortar drops because the attack helicopter pilots like Huey and Cobras or utility and attack, Hueys and Cobras, they need to get 
their what they call FAC A, Ford Airborne uh, controller air. So they have to be able to control motors, which is very difficult for them to do. So I'd get these guys to come out to Yuma. And if I could get the Hueys and the motors, then the jets would come. So we do have these packages where we'd run like 450 airstrikes sorties uh, in a week, training force recon platoons right before the wars. So we trained in platoons from the East Coast and West Coast. And it was a phenomenal experience for me to understand the intelligence aspect and the aviation ordinance and to have thousands of controls leaving there and also instructing uh, that and learning uh, everything about getting in and out using aviation assets because when the war kicked off they started using improvised explosives it's very very dangerous as we all know to drive down roads uh, there's just really no safe areas until you actually get on the target and there's fewer explosives where they live uh, so we would use a lot of aviation and uh, doing offsets, walking in, and varied our tactics. And then after that job, I got early paroled uh, because there was an unfortunate event that occurred at the Force Recon Unit in Camp Pendleton, California. They had a shooting uh, right before they were going out on a group of ships from the West Coast. Uh, they had a live fire combat drills with their carbines, and then they went to a, do a blank fire raid with real actual role, live role players. Uh, they didn't clear out their mags. They didn't do an inspection. I remember Kim, hearing about that, actually, because I was at Team 3 when that happened. Yeah, August 2002, a Range 130, yeah. Range 131 in Camp Pendleton. So 19-year-old military policeman, U.S. Marine, was killed. Um, so they took action with the leadership in that platoon, and then um, that's what led me getting out of uh, Yuma, Arizona early and went to uh, Camp Pendleton again as a platoon commander at First Force Recon in December 2002. Uh, and I stayed there till 2006, and that's when the Marine Special Operations Command started up. Yeah, and so were you integrated into it once it did? So those almost four years at First Force Recon, I was a platoon commander, and we would. my first deployment was on a group of ships. Uh, we went overseas right... Um, thought we missed the war in Iraq. We thought it was going to be like Desert Storm and over in four days. So, uh, but we did uh, 36 visit board search and seizures, ship takedowns. And then um, we went into Iraq, did some reconnaissance and uh, some raids. Um, and then left, came back on the ships, uh, back to San Diego. And then it was flyover deployments after that, seven months on the ground. Yeah. Um, so we didn't, like the frogs, we didn't totally get off the ships. So guys were still deploying on ships. And then on your time back that we'd normally do some schools and train, you, <laughs> yeah. you got the extra benefit, of, which was what we were looking for. And those were much more aggressive, the flyover, because you're actually in country for seven months. Yeah. And we were all over Western Iraq, where before we were in Southern Iraq uh, at the early stage of the war. And then the Marines took ownership of the West portion of Iraq, which was like, You've probably been there, the Wild West. It was untamed. And we were very nomadic. I know, like, you know, Jocko and these guys were in, like, certain cities, but we would go from Korean Village to Huseba to Haditha to hit all over uh, the whole Western area of operation. Yeah. Um, during that time, I mean, were, there, were you guys going out uh, 
from a, I guess from a firefight standpoint, like were you guys mixing it up most days? That's good uh, question. We were out almost every single day, and sometimes uh, we were doing these time sensitive targets. So there's always something in the target deck, and there were times we'd action a target, come back, drone feet, and we'd be out like an hour later on another mission. Um, and it could be because we were based primarily out of Al-Assad, which was a massive air base. Um, we could be all over. I mean, we went north of the Euphrates up into northern Iraq. It was all the time. But uh, I will say, you know, during this time, I, uh, I actually met my ex-wife. She was a student <laughs> when I was an instructor at uh, the Marine Corps version of Top Gun. She was an intel officer. And so it was kind of the reverse of Top Gun where I was an instructor, <laughs> she was a student. But uh, <clears throat> but that's where I kind of did get into more of the intel piece as well as the aviation and the joint uh, piece, working with all different units, all these different enablers, these guys that do things that special operators normally don't do, and integrating that into the fight. So about firefights, um, I'm just a guy from Eastern Kansas. I don't have some big legacy, but my, in the book, you know, that's a real term. My buddy here, um, that I'm staying with in Fort Worth is, a, you know, the guy who called me filthy Fred, but, uh, I just had no time because you, when you're trying, when you have all these assets and then this was on that deployment in 2005, I mean, everything was in Iraq. Yeah. started surging forces and so um but the job nowhere in the mission or the intent on the order was to get in a firefight and people would mock us like you guys tie up all these assets i'm like well are they being used are you using these so why are you caring if we do use this a uh, high dollar electric electronic attack platform because we need it for its capabilities and nobody else is using it but if we could go in there and do some things that I can't get into to prevent guys from getting, our guys from getting blown up, compromised. But we have to do some things very deliberately um, the way we would infiltrate. Um, I used to love it because the story is real in the book and it talks about like literally our interpreter would uh, be with us and this guy's awesome dude. He'd say, these people, they know that when you guys come, it's different. Because you're not like Americans drive down the road and get blown up and run the vehicle into the front door and start this big firefight. They think that aliens abduct. <laughs> like at this time in these places, like these really bad guys, the leaders, they, everybody that we're detaining is thinking that there's uh, aliens that just pick these guys up because there's no noise. And to me, that's the best is when you, you got a barrel on a guy's face when he's in bed and yeah. just roll them over and tie them up and yeah. get them out of there. And there's no gunfight. And we, we had changed our tactics. Originally we were using a lot of explosive breaching. And then we just uh, tried to do things as surreptitious by the method of infill and uh, going in as quietly over obstacles, I'll say versus mechanically or explosively or it's that having audible compromises is not good. And, we had a replaceable platoon that had 22 or 24 in that platoon wounded or killed. So Holy shit. Yeah. And, and that was a different mindset. 
again, East Coast versus West Coast. And I'm not saying we're, but it, I was trying to take every, and I would constantly, when we were home back in the U.S., email on the, the high side, hey, what are you guys doing on a daily basis? So what they were doing and what they were experiencing was being built into our training before we'd go over there. And you know, that's the last sentence of the book, you know, on all these combat deployments, never losing someone, you know, statistically, that is a rarity. An aberration. An anomaly. Yeah. Yeah. So I started dipping when I was in high school. Um, I started with pouches, as most kids do. Uh, ultimately, in the military, I dipped the entire time I was there. A lot of us did. Um, you know, one of the things about dipping is that it, it kind of turns into a, a ritual where you know, it's really part of, uh, part of the culture almost, uh, oftentimes in the military and in a lot of fields that, uh, that are, are that way. And, and, uh, one of the things obviously, you know, real, real tobacco, uh, isn't the best for you. Um, but because of that ritual being such a, an ingrained part of that culture, it's something that a lot of times we miss. And even when I got out of the Navy, uh, I still dipped for a number of years. Uh, I wish that I had had this product, black Buffalo, it's a, a tobacco-free alternative uh, that I can tell you it looks, smells, tastes, uh, feels everything like the real thing, uh, but there is no tobacco in it. And uh, it's a phenomenal product. Uh, they have mint, wintergreen, blood orange, uh, straight peach. Um, what's cool is they also, they've got um, the, the straight as far as the, the cut. Uh, they've got long cut. They've got pouches. Uh, so it's really kind of a, a one-stop shop for tobacco-free alternatives that way. Uh, but they also have a zero uh, version, which has absolutely no nicotine. So you can get it with nicotine if you want the nicotine, uh, or you can get it without nicotine if, if you don't. Uh, it's all food-grade ingredients, um, green, green cabbage essentially, uh, as well as pharmaceutical-grade nicotine if that's the, the option that you choose. Uh, but it's just a, an awesome company. It's veteran-started. Uh, and they're big supporters of the Mic Drop podcast, uh, and it's a product that uh, that I stand behind and and uh, absolutely endorse. It, it, it's a great great crew of guys. What's really cool about uh, Black Buffalo is it it's uh, you know it's the look, the feel, the smell, the taste, the texture, everything the same as as regular dip. And uh, you know to me that's that's the the big thing missing from all all and any other alternatives, little pouches of nicotine or. Uh, any of the other stuff that doesn't use a, um, a product that, that really has that same, same feel. It, it doesn't feel like you're actually dipping it. So uh, Black Buffalo has done a, a masterful job at creating that same experience. Uh, the flavors are all on point. Uh, the long cut and the pouches are, are both just like the, the real thing. And again, the fact that you can, you can get it with nicotine if you want, uh, or you can get it completely nicotine free if you want. So Again, if you're 21 years or older uh, and you dip and you want uh, that tobacco-free alternative, go to blackbuffalo.com and the code is MikeDrop for 20% off. Um, did you guys get into any actual gunfights? Oh, yeah. What, yeah. Uh, do any stand out as being, uh, you know, more like the most memorable or more memorable than others in terms of what, uh, like how it took place and what happened? Yeah, and one is described in the book, <clears throat> not to tease everything, but uh, it was interesting because we were in this place where, and this happened later on in Afghanistan too, um, where we saw another force doing this. But when, when you do things to telegraph your your movements, like 
line up all your chariots in broad daylight and let people, I mean, you're either going to try to desensitize and make it seem like this is what you're always doing. So you're less predictable. But, uh, this one time I knew like, this is bad, but RCO was driving, like, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it in the Marine Corps. You're not so Marine Corps has this, uh, ethos of how we conduct our missions is through maneuver warfare. Um, like I'll give you a mission, but I don't tell you how to do it. I may give you some, uh, guidance, but I paint, I allow you as big of a box as you can have. And then I'm here to empower and resource you. Uh, but we were, had our hands tied. We we're going to go down route diamond, uh, at night. And he, he was being the platoon commander line up the vehicles, do this inspection rehearsal. So when you're in a train station in Al-Qaim, uh, out in Western Iraq, that's being observed, um, you're compromised. And there's only so many ways out of that base. And um, a lot of Marines were getting killed at that time. Uh, we originally were out there even earlier than that and on that deployment because the Infantry Battalion, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines from the East Coast, Camp Lejeune, or Lejeune as they call it. They <laughs> the really good drinking water. Yeah, yeah. You can get a good attorney to <laughs> help you out if you're there before 1987. But yeah. these guys uh, had been hit so bad so many times that they they hunkered down on on at the train station Al Qaim and at Camp Gannon, and they just were in a defense. And they get hit with a couple. Um, sequential suicide car bombs. So they were like hunkered down. So they brought, we separated our platoon. We broke it in two. Force recon platoons aren't big. So we sent half of our guys out there just to show an infantry, but a reinforced infantry battalion with uh, Amtraks. These are armored vehicles with tanks, a tank platoon. Uh, we went out, we sent a platoon, half of our platoon to show these guys like, hey, you can go out at night. Here's how you do it. And Here's how to rock and roll and do basic infantry stuff. Force recon guys at that time, we weren't doing anything. We weren't haloing in and, you know, using a sub in Western Iraq. No, it was your, you got your leather personnel carriers walking out there or you're coming in a vehicle. But, um, so we showed these guys, they started doing it on their own, but after they'd been doing it a while, they took even more casualties. And, uh, so we left their route diamond this night. It was, it was later in the evening, but the enemies were all ready because they knew, and they set their kill zone up very well, and we just got volley-fired rocket-propelled grenades. Uh, that night, um, it was a miracle because what was coming in on us uh, was something I've never seen before. I mean, RPGs were coming in at us like belt-fed machine gun fire, just like, just, bam. And we are in this... Uh, on this road that the target we were driving towards was this place we called the mansion. It was this big house. We were going in to occupy it and then to do use that as a patrol base for the next several days. And this is what we used to do in the, you know, kick them out of their house and give them some money and say, when you don't see us here anymore, you come back. And then we'd literally uh, pick it out with a triple staring Constantino wire, make that a patrol base so we wouldn't uh, have any car bombs come in on us and, go out and do punch out, do patrols and raids from there. And, uh, but on our way in, we were getting it good from, uh, and we had, uh, won't go into all the, uh, assets and procedures to reveal anything, but we had 
significant uh, aviation surveillance and attack in, in multiple layers um, is our guardian angel. But uh, when you're on the ground, if, even the Kazvac platforms, like how many uh, wounded and where do you need us to extract from? And it was a miracle because the enemy didn't, they hit our vehicles. They didn't, uh, they didn't wound or kill any of us. That's incredible. That was amazing. Um, how did you guys fight your way out of that? Oh, it was beautiful. So a uh, young sergeant who's actually a corporal at that time, he was a gunner in our turret, recon marine. He just came from Okinawa. He's now a new guy at First Force Recon. He died later in Afghanistan getting burned to death, unfortunately. Uh, stud, uh, Patrick Dolphin. This guy was just rocking and rolling. Uh, you know, medium machine gun, just letting the enemy have it. And uh, that's one thing I will tell uh, Marines is, you know, we train to fight an enemy. This is not uh, fun stuff. It's not easy stuff. You you have to have it instinctual, ingrained in your blood to not hesitate. When somebody's firing uh, a rocket-propelled grenade and, you know, medium and heavy machine guns at you, they're not there to uh, have their hearts and minds be one. You, you must kill them, and it must be... Like later on, when I started Marsoc, and I'll just tease this a little bit. Um, I said, "What's your call sign?" Named ourselves calls. Our call sign was violent, and, yeah. uh, and I had to breed that into Marines because in America, we are not normally raising youth, and that's what we have fighting is people in their twenties. We don't train people prior to that to kill. Or to even really be violent in any, in any regard. I mean, no. there, there's a few sports that allow slash mildly encourage aspects of it. But, yeah, I mean, our society has, has become uh, so soft to where it's, it's – I mean, you, you see it biting us in the ass. But, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Well, Mike, that's – you look back after 20 years, why we, why we lost. Well, when you put I'll, – I'll name some names. When you put guys like General Petraeus in charge – and it sounds it sounds wonderful, but that's it's not violent. It's not pushing that down like I will support you when you have your paramour come over and you're having sex with her while she's writing a book about you and you're over there as a four star general in charge of Afghanistan trying to win supposedly trying to win this war. Someone who is violent, you know, has to go out and say, Whatever you need, I will give you. Yeah. And that's in the book too. Uh on subsequent mission, also back out there in Al Qaim later on on that deployment, um, there's a warrior from the East Coast, the regimental commander, full bird Marine Colonel uh, Steve Davis. He made no bones about it. We were going out on a reconnaissance patrol. They were doing this huge regimental sweep. They pushed across the north side of the Euphrates, but before that operation kicked off, Operation Matador, uh, he said, uh, I want you to go up on that ridge line. And we're going to push from east to west into Jordan. We're going to push these guys and just kill as many. Drop every, drop all this aviation ordinance. Do you have any questions? I want you to kill as many as you can. And no, sir. And uh, none of us. But that was the his verbal commander's intention. And they later uh, you know, relieved him. And uh, it was very unfortunate because this guy was a. Uh, awesome, 
awesome leader. He had spent time in reconnaissance and at JSOC. He was a, he was a warrior, and uh, he had our backs. Uh, so there, there were Marines like that. He got caught up in this Haditha. There was a, a war crimes trial from the Haditha incident in October of 2005, and he was the regimental commander um, and several Marines. You saw, and that's not exactly detailed out in this book, but it, it refers to it. Um, but there was five cases that kind of set ours up to have us be the sacrificial lamb. And that was uh, what happened in the Corporal Pat, Patrick Tillman case. So that was investigated five times. And God bless Pat's mother, Mary, for urging. Like, I know she smelt the odor of crap, and she made sure that that was going to get investigated properly. And they found that all these people were lying and covering this stuff up. And that's the key thing. So then there was this other one with uh, a Marine infantry officer in Fallujah uh, with 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines. Then there was Haditha, Hamnania, and then ours comes around. Uh, ours is the largest in terms of numbers of alleged civilians killed, but the, the hall passes were all, they were all out yeah. at that time. So nobody, and what they found in those four other prior cases was senior officers had either distorted the truth or they didn't investigate quickly enough or completely enough. So now the pendulum swung on the other side. When people say, why this book, these guys went after you like, they dogpiled it. Well, the pendulum swung the other way. So now they're like, we are going to send so many people after you. We're going to investigate this so quickly and so thoroughly. I mean, there were seven of us who were accused, and they sent 45 criminal investigators and four prosecuting attorneys, completely unprecedented in Marine Corps history, to dogpile seven to one odds against seven of us. And the tactics, this I won't totally tease. You know, read what they did by threatening to deport this guy's family, legally immigrated, legally um, naturalized, legally joined the Marine Corps. And now here's prosecuting attorneys dressing up in civilian clothes, threatening to deport this guy's family. Let's make a choice because they're coercing him. He doesn't understand no fault of his own. You come over here at 14, you're probably not going to understand the 14th Amendment most kids these days aren't taught that, that you can't lose your citizenship whether you're naturalized or native-born. And they put them on this, in this crucible where you choose your blood family or your brothers in arms to try to convince, to, in an attempt to convict in known innocent. I mean, they had our sworn testimonies from 30 Americans, my polygraph. They knew what the truth was. They, there was <laughs> one of the jury members said it uh, best and uh televised uh, testimony says to the news years later after he retired he says this was a perfect storm of toxic officers they and he says when he was stationed at the pentagon and they were coming up with the marine special operations command concept that rumsfeld was pushing to have the marine corps do this he says they he was in these closed door sessions where they were trying to kill this program yeah and i was this guy the the first commanding officer of this unit that i didn't know any better i was naive I'm not ashamed to admit that. I just didn't know that somebody <laughs> could stab you in the back that's wearing the same uniform. I just didn't ever expect that because we'd been going from combat deployment to combat deployment. And at this stage in the game, like I could never fathom that people would actually do that. And it was not 
totally like Julius Caesar, but it wasn't just one or two. Caesar had 69 senators, not just Brutus stab him in the back. And you read this book, and a lot of people say, like, two things. A lot of people say there's a lot of people that did some nasty stuff, and it's there, and it's in their own words that they testify that they did this. And then other friends of mine that knew the complete case said that I didn't. I let some people off and not, you know, some senior officers, mm-hmm. three-star officers, generals and Marines, uh, by not covering. And it's like you can't. I mean, but the bottom line is there were a lot of people that did some terrible things and in America we don't paint the we predominantly came here Western Europe kind of a Puritan culture that uh, we don't glorify Judas uh, or other traitors like Benedict Arnold Uh, people don't even like to how many times do you have somebody on and talk about treason or a traitor but when you look at what Marion Webster defines those as someone who betrays their country or fellow man. What happened in our book, the, the reason is different than most is because it's a book about treason and betrayal, about traitors. And this isn't Fred Galvin describing this. I was the fighter in the story. Salmana wrote a book. He took 20,000 pages of sworn testimony. And this is people who were protected that they classified their testimonies to protect these guys. And now I fought for 11 years to get it, the preliminary investigation released from the Special Operations Command and the testimony released from the Marine Corps, from the courtroom, there's no reason to be, have it declassified. But after working with two attorneys, you know, pushing this through, hey, we're going to take you to federal court, it finally came through, drip, drip, drip. It's all in one place, and there's no book like that. Uh, the Marine Corps will not allow this to be sold on any um, military base. Um, this upcoming speaking engagement next week. Um, it's at the Marine Corps Memorial Hotel in San Francisco. Uh, we were prohibited from bringing C-SPAN there. Uh, they, the Marine Corps doesn't own that hotel, but they still yeah. <laughs> influence. Wow. Uh, they, they will not say a word about this book. Uh, this has been out. I've done hundreds of interviews. Nobody's disputed anything because it's, it's their own words. Yeah. But it's a... Uh, it's about betrayal and in most people in their life, women, men have had a boss, spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, do something they consider that. And that's what I think this book can help them. But also this is a story about our nation's largest employer yeah. and the abuse of power that those leaders in charge have done and are getting away with, with this case right now with the MARSOC three. Yeah. So as somebody who's been you know through it, um, as well as at higher levels of military leadership, what is your perspective and take on how and why it's happening, why it's happening and how it's even possible for the upper echelons of our government and military leadership to conduct themselves in this manner? So I'll go back to a pivotal time in 2005 and 2006. I just described Colonel Steve Davis, this warrior's warrior, is our regimental commander that we were working for at First Force Recon Company when I was a platoon commander there in Western Iraq. He did what a leader is supposed to do. He leader, There's an unwritten rule if you're a leader in these small units in elite special operations unit, whatever the service is, the leader is supposed to 
he's obligated to absorb the pain, to stand up and take the heat uh, for his team, his guys. Um, when Colonel Davis went down and Major General Huck went down, people went the other way. And also, like I said, 2005, 2006, you saw a resurgence, especially in Iraq, that was really hot time. They started surging all these forces. There's a full-length ad of, in the New York Times called General Betrayus. So they took every Marine out of Afghanistan, surged them into Iraq, and uh, it was a very ugly time, unpopular in American history. Uh, a lot of people were getting wounded and killed. It was ugly in the headlines. Then uh, in 06, that, that time in I, Afghanistan, you actually had the opposite. It was a success story. The Taliban had been routed. They go over to Afghanistan <clears throat> and other places, start to regroup. But uh, in 06, Hamid Karzai, because he had some success with the U.S. Special Operations Forces, primarily doing the, the heavy lifting, they, uh, Hamid Karzai, the president of Afghanistan, meets with George Bush Jr., number 43, in the White House. And in May 2006, they say, we want to have a, a nation. We want to have a, like a Western-style democracy. So they came up with this. This was later after Petraeus leaves Iraq. He goes over to uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, becomes a commanding general there. They build this counterinsurgency strategy. And it becomes a joint doctrine. So Mattis, who is a three-star in charge of the Marine Corps Combat Development Command in Quantico, they they pin this thing together, counterinsurgency strategy, and that's the winning hearts and minds. Mattis even went so far to hijack the phrase from the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Tell me in Iraq or Afghanistan if that's going to send mixed signals to a kid that just saw somebody get blown up by a improvised explosive device. You know, first do no harm, like... Um, and I, I'm not advocating mowing down people without weapons or women, children, but, uh, what, to answer your question, Mike, in 05, 06, it started this first do no harm. It went from very aggressive kinetic operations where we were winning at that time to we're taming the wild west in Afghanistan to this thing that spun out of control and lasted for 20 years that made the situation worse in the end. But I will say that when Hamid Karzai and Bush met, the so what on that is our generals, we don't hire stupid three and four star generals and admirals that are working in places like the Middle East or in the Pentagon that are leading. They're not stupid. They saw opportunities. And you have talked to these people. They're, they're smart. But they're also not going to set up themselves and to absorb that pain. They're like, hey, this thing's going to go on forever if we have anything to do with it and we can make a lot of money. Look at our current Secretary of Defense. Came from Raytheon. Retired as a CENTCOM commanding general. Uh, four-star general there in Tampa. Just like Mattis, who'd been before him, the four-star general in Tampa. I mean, Mattis is making a million dollars a year on the board of General Dynamics, literally, on top of his $203,000 pension that he's got. Uh, I don't know what they paid uh What's his face? Austin. General Austin. And, uh, but look at our last chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, last senior officer in the military, a Marine four-star general, Joe Dunford, went straight over and working at a board chairman, or not chairman, but a board member at Lockheed Martin, the largest defense contractor in the world. The guy who was a colonel at the time, 
And when you read about in this book, which we had to cut out some parts of, but some critical parts I wish we kept in there, but what, that he testified under oath of what this guy did is so treasonous. John Nicholson, what happened to him? He got promoted four stars. He was second last general in charge of Afghanistan, the, the whole mess that was there. And now he's also, he's the chief executive of Middle East operations. He moved over to Abu Dhabi with his new wife and still a war pimp for these forever wars. Uh, and trust me, these guys are not there on some no general left behind program to keep them off the streets. Or, I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they have financial wherewithal to retire and live in, in so, style. So is it, is it safe to say that, uh, to, to reduce it down to kind of a, a simple phrase is that the the profitability of, of war and the and the tie-ins with high level military leadership with contractors and and you know the, the war machine the industrial complex whatever the fuck you want to call it is that 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 is the, the kind of driving force behind why there's so much corruption and why they're why they would come down so hard on somebody like you Absolutely. I've named names and, um, and they don't want to mention anything in this book. These, so case in point, I mentioned General Dunford and some people are like fighting Joe, such a good guy. And it's like, well, 2015, when he was the commandant of the Marine Corps, the senior Marine in the service, he sends letters. You know, I was retired at that time. I went back to live in Kansas. We have family situation. Um, uh, and I started a business. I was putting up these automatic teller machines, my own brand in the ghettos really? of, of Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, so I say that because I contacted the Kansas and Missouri senators, and I got all four of them, uh, Blunt, McCaskill, Moran, Roberts, as well as Congressman Walter Jones, who had fought till the, literally he died. Uh, so all five of these send a message over to General Dunford and he replies the last paragraph I have it brought it brought it here to Dallas with me it says none of these marines had any adverse administrative or judicial action taken against them 2015 official correspondence from the commandant of the marine corps and you know somebody who's a four star admiral or general they don't gun deck something half half ass and send it to members not just of congress but members of the Senate and House Armed Services Committee, to include Congressman Jones, a longest standing at that time member of the House Armed Services Committee, it's thoroughly reviewed. It's not a 2 a.m. drunk tweet, right? No, yeah. no, it's not. But, and then he, but in 2019, the general counsel for the Department of the Navy releases a 12-page explicit statement. The first page says, remove this adverse material out of my official military personnel files. Retired. So officially confirms that General Dunford, while he was the commandant, submitted a false official statement to multiple members of Congress. That can't be accidental. That's a felony offense to lie to Congress. Uh, now he's retired and working Lockheed Martin, the nation's large. So when, when you see or see and say, why are these guys, you know, they all are seem to be working on these boards and like Mattis is also working with the Cohen group brokering these deals with China. Listeners, China's not our friend. Wake up. They're going to push the 96 miles across the Straits of Taiwan 
and it's going to be very expensive for anyone that you have that's under 30 years old that could get drafted. And the only way we're going to dislodge the People's Liberation Army out of Taiwan is through amphibious and airborne operations. That's coming. You better realize it. It's going to be expensive in blood, and it's going to be beyond your imagination as far as the financial cost to our country because these war pimps, uh, almost 80 years ago, a general retired and talked about this in, named General Smedley Butler in a book called War is a Racket. This is going on right now, except we have generals that retired and are on these boards because they have access to the Pentagon. You and I don't have badges. You have to either be a retired 09, that's a three-star general or admiral or above, to, to be able to walk into the Pentagon without badge access. Or they also have been done, especially if you retired and you've done duty in the Pentagon and you have these relationships with members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee, people wonder why. Why is our military so woke? Why are they pushing critical race theory? Why are they doing all this ridiculous stuff? Why are they forcing one of a good friend of mine, the first Marine ever to serve in uh, uh, Army's Tier 1 command, and he retired out of there. His son um, joined the Marine Corps, F-35 Charlie pilot, oh, most nice. advanced aircraft in the U.S. military on the earth, I'd say. Uh, about ready to go on deployment on the USS Abraham Lincoln, involuntarily separated from the Marine Corps. They kicked him out because he wouldn't take a that wouldn't get his COVID shot. So, why are we pushing all this stuff still to this day, uh, and wondering why our why the Army missed uh, the recruiting goals by twenty thousand? You know, just this last week, at the turn of the fiscal year, and people don't there there is a crisis of what's called morale, and when we look at what's going on in Russia and how ineffective they are against Ukraine, which they outnumber exponentially, and their technology is, I mean, Russia could just pummel, but it's when, when they start this by saying that it's gonna be a special military operation and the people in the, their own country don't know, they're being lied to, their troops are being lied to, there's problems with morale. And that definitely can happen to the United States when we have problems with morale, which we're seeing right now, we better take heart to it. As you guys know, I am a, uh, a gun advocate. I'm a 2A supporter. Uh, I have been my entire life, served in the military. I carry a gun with me pretty much everywhere. Um, and I recently came across and became a member of uh, USCCA, the United States Concealed Carry Association. Um, and I want to tell you about this uh, group because they're a phenomenal, uh, patriotic company that uh, understands the advantages and the, the importance of carrying a concealed gun responsibly. Uh, one of the biggest issues, I think, with um, you know the, the anti-Second Amendment crowds these days is the, um, the one, one of it's not understanding you know what, what it takes to, to carry a gun and, and really even how they function and, and what it is to shoot them, um, but also assuming that people are carrying guns that have absolutely no idea what they're doing. What I love about USCCA uh, is that they have uh, 200 easy-to-understand videos that uh, give you a lot of training. It's not just firearms training, though. It's uh, laws that are constantly changing. It's uh, the legalities of if you find yourself in this situation, this is what's legal, this is what isn't. Um, you know, it's kind of a step-by-step -step process that gives you advice uh, and counsel uh, on how to operate a, a concealed weapon both within the parameters of the law and also from a morality standpoint, uh, kind of the right way to go about it, which is a, a critical component. Um, 
Speaking of the legality aspect, they also provide liability insurance. If you are a USCCA member uh, and you get into a confrontation where a concealed weapon is used, they provide uh, that, that insurance uh, for that scenario, which to me is, is priceless. Uh, and it's also uh, very necessary should you find yourself in that position. Uh, they have a 24-7 access network uh, to legal providers and attorneys in whatever state that you're located in, uh, in whatever uh, area that that, that uh, altercation takes place in, uh, that they assign you that person for that, uh, that jurisdiction so that it's applicable with all of the statutes and laws of that area. Um, the, the initial uh, sign-up fee is, is as low as $29. Uh, they have different um, levels that you can go one, two, and three to become certified. Um, it's just, it's a phenomenal company. If that's not enough, uh, they also, um, being a, a card carrying member of the USCCA, you also get 30% off, uh, brands like Sig Sauer, Galco leather holsters. I, I own both. I have a, a number of Galco leather holsters that I carry, uh, some of my Sig Sauer guns in. And, and, uh, so those are both two good brands, uh, as well as a subscription to concealed carry magazine, uh, to keep you up to date on all things concealed carry. Uh, and then again, I want to reiterate that self-defense liability insurance, which, uh, which is huge. So, um, I, I think, you know, with the state of our, our country and where it's at, being a responsible citizen means that should you find yourself in a position to protect others, I think you should, uh, put it on yourself to do that. And it's the right thing to do. You don't want to do that haphazardly though. So, um, you know, I don't think everybody should just go out and grab, grab a gun and not know what they're doing. I think responsible gun owners should carry guns and, and use them should they find themselves in that, uh, that position. And we all take it upon ourselves to be uh, the protectors of those who cannot uh, protect themselves. And I think the USCCA is a phenomenal organization uh, that bridges the gap from uh, you know your average everyday civilian that wants to get involved to somebody who actually can be a protector and, and make a positive net difference in society. So uh, great group. Um, I'm honored to have their, their sponsorship, uh, and that's uh, the United States Concealed Carry Association. If you go to uscca.com forward slash mic drop, you can get, get this process started, become a card-carrying member, along with 650,000 other card-carrying members across the United States. Phenomenal organization. I can't uh, say enough good things about them. Uh, I am a card-carrying member, uh, and they're just a great organization. So again, that's uscca.com forward slash mic drop. Do you know why why the upper echelons of the military leadership are pushing such a social experiment, woke type type of mentality? What What is the reason behind that? Well, like I was saying, when you have officers like General Dunford, General Mattis, um, they, they're war pimps. General Mattis is working for General Dynamics. Uh, so all these guys, General Mattis is an infantry officer like myself. He, he doesn't have a PhD in mechanical engineering or aerospace engineering. These, look at the products that they're selling. Missile systems, radars, aviation assets. General Dunford's a grunt too. Yeah. They don't have background in this, but what they have is access in the Pentagon, and they have the relationships with members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. It's real important that you understand, like the Senate Armed Services Committee, they receive the recommendations for those being promoted from the Pentagon. The Pentagon recommends them, the Senate Armed Services Committee approves them. So 
you have to be friends with those on the Senate Armed Service Committee because <coughs> they will approve or disapprove, and they don't want the straightest shooter. Okay. Now, so now it makes sense. So that the the people that are in those positions who are greasing the skids for their jobs afterwards are trying to appease politicians on the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, by yeah. by doing that type of shit. Exactly. Yeah. And they've they've promoted these guys God, for the last. That's such a fucking. That's criminal. And you look at. You know, people think, and I'm, I'm kind of both sides of the fence on this. Um, Russia's not our friend either. So anybody that's an enemy of our enemy is our friend. I don't think Ukraine is the greatest country in the world. And so killing Russians is is good. And uh, But when we look at, like, the United States, we in the Marine Corps just got rid of 100%, even in the reserves, Hundred percent of our tanks, all gone. They're not in progress. Gone. Oh, we're going to do the island hopping strategy for the getting ready for uh, the battle in the Pacific. Okay, okay. But then we give away one third of our shoulder fire rockets, our javelins, to Ukraine. That's okay, because now let's go back to you know the No General Left Behind program. General Austin, you know, he came from Raytheon the last chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dunford, who works for Lockheed Martin right now, board member. They had a joint venture, and this joint venture makes the Javelin missile. So now you start seeing, oh, yeah. That's so they, why they're using that. Yeah, what, of all those chosen, they chose the Javelin. They've given 5,000, one-third of our supplies when we've gotten rid of all our tanks. That's okay because we can make more. And, and they just, get rich from it. Yeah. yeah. Is it a... Surprised that we left $7 billion worth of war material in Afghanistan. I mean, if you need to replenish that supply, we've got more to sell you. Yeah. So I, I understand that. I mean, I, it's sickening and it, it drives me nuts. But I, I can at least understand the, I guess, the, the corruption and how it's derived in that regard. What I, what I still don't understand and i'm curious to get your take on i mean i, I can make an assumption uh, but it is why those guys at that level have such a hard on for coming down on a guy like you is it simply because you're the antithesis of what they are and it it's an ego thing and, and it drives them nuts or is it they don't want people who are legitimately good war fighters kicking ass because it speeds the war up and and threatens their their bottom line or what like what what's the the driving force behind their issue with with guys like you doing what you do and, and like why did they come after you so hard good question so i was talking with one of my mentors yesterday and one of his mentors is a senior retired marine general he said yesterday he said freddie i won't mention this general's name but he's like he told me before you guys ever deployed you guys don't stand a chance and the marine corps had this apprehension it goes back to World War II when they had the Marine Raiders of World War II. From February 42 to February 44, they were disbanded. Stroke of a pen by the Commandant is not in the best interest to have an elite with an elite by. And they went on, assimilated into the Marine Infantry Divisions and fought all the way up into the Battle of Okinawa, the last Marine uh, amphibious assault in, in World War II. But they didn't want them. 1987, all the different services formed into the Special Operations Command, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Rangers, Army or Air, Air Force Special Operations, Marines. No, 
in a way for business sense, it's a good business case that if you're going to pay for that beer, I'm going to drink the beer. And it's, it makes sense because the Marine Corps is very small. We only had a few, like I said, 300 of these force recon Marines. Why would we give those up? If we're going to man train and equip, we're going to pay all that to have some army guy use them. And that's exactly what happened. We're the first guys when, uh, when we formed, who do we work for? We, <laughs> they tried to keep us on the ships, and then uh, an army general in charge of Special Operations Command pulled us off the ships and sent us in to work for an army Special Operations colonel in uh, Afghanistan. So, but the Marine Corps slow rolled that. In 2001, Secretary of Defense at the time, Donald Rumsfeld, said, you will create a Special Operations capacity for all services needed to increase it. So you saw SEAL Team 7. They, they increased in the SEAL teams, and the Green Berets added a battalion per group. Uh, but the Marine Corps uh, said, we'll send some liaisons to Tampa, the Special Operations Command. So they basically ignored the order. Got some more pressure later. Okay, we'll do this proof of concept for two years. And so you had the Marine Corps Special Operations Command, Detachment 1, deployed uh, to Iraq and... 2004 uh, with the SEALs into uh, Iraq. They were successful. Then they, the Marine Corps, big Marine Corps, not the, the Force Recon Marines that were part of that. Big Marine Corps slow rolls that for another year. Yeah, we, we're analyzing this. And then guess what? The Pentagon, they hedged their bets like Bush, 43, he'll be a one-term president like his dad. Guess what? He got reelected, kept Rumsfeld as the Secretary of Defense. Rumsfeld ordered Get off your ass. Start the Special Operations Command. Uh, you will have a Marine component in there. So uh, they called me. I was with, like in the book. I was in uh, the Big Island in Hilo, Hawaii uh, with my girlfriend at the time. And they just said, hey, uh, you, you're you going to report to Camp Lejeune. You're going to be the first uh, company commander for the Marine Special Operations Company. And that's how it went. Yeah. but Do, do you know why they're so gung-ho on on stifling your career and story and, and I mean trying to send you to fucking prison like what what was their their angle and, and incentive for doing that so so hard yeah so I described one but the critical points the other so they never wanted special operations and I was a guy just doing my job I didn't get a wink or a nod somebody saying hey slow roll this but I also saw the tea leaves you know, when they're not doing any military construction, when there's this huge, because of the war effort in that time in 06, massive budget, so tons of money is coming in Special Operations Command. And you don't, you don't even say, hey, can I have a shekel? You don't want anything? You don't, you don't submit? And so now the, the table of organization, like what they said that were going to be created in this organization, went from 300 Force Recon Marines to, <laughs> to 2,600 guys in Marine Special Operations Command and they said, we don't need, all your weapons will come out of the Second Force Recon Armory. I'm like, okay, that's enough for like my company. But I mean, we're, we're growing, I mean, 115 guys in our company. And that's a lot bigger than we ever were before. But I think they just wanted this thing to die. Uh, put no mil plans for military construction down. That came later. But, uh, you know, I was very aggressively building roads like on my drive across the country, the first stop, and this goes back to being an instructor at the Marines version of Top Gun, but my first stop was Vegas, 
need to get my mind right out there. Now I went to uh, talk to the instructors at Red Flag because I know, and I actually recruited our aviation officer from the Marine Corps. He was going through that as a student, uh, but I was trying to build relationships with the joint community, joint aviation, first with the Air Force. Then I drove uh, to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, talked to the 160th Army Special Operations Aviation Regiment, then went down to Herbert Field, talked to the Air Force Special Operations Command, went out to Fort Bragg, and throughout the next 11 months, we did interoperability with all these guys. I received so much animosity and pushback from the people in my own command, in the operations section, like, why are you talking these? And the same thing with asking for, we went over there, total shooters, no logistics, not a logistics person, period. And you just can't operate and sustain operations. Stuff breaks if you're in the most formidable train in the world in the Kyber Pass there in the wintertime. Uh, vehicles break, radios break, things break. You need food, stuff like water. If you can't order any of that in the Army, you know, us working for the Army is kind of like you bringing your girlfriend home to meet your wife. It's not welcome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, their support side is like, you know, and it's detailed in the book, you know, what they didn't provide, but uh, not going to cry about it here, but it was, it was not a good setup from day one. Yeah. Uh, so, but I kept doing that. And then now that I'm retired and I'm requesting for years to have this stuff declassified, I'm breaking ranks. So I've become public enemy number one. And we saw this time last year, there was this Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller. He was yeah. out, out there talking about, you know, the, the withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Then he started to get off on these other topics, but he's, you know, they, uh, they sent him to the brig, you know, they put a gag order on him. He, he broke that and they sent him to the brig and then they sent him to a court martial and kicked him out. So the Marine Corps does not, this isn't Fred Galvin's opinion. This is me telling you facts. They don't deal well when you break ranks, even after you retire. If you want to write a book, they, they will just treat it like the whole existence of the task force that I commanded, like it didn't even exist. Yeah. So, I mean, to reduce it to, to a single element is that you went against the grain uh, yes. and, and they're pissed about that and that's why they came after you so hard? 100%. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd love to get into the actual instance in, in the, the operation that, uh, that this all stems from. We'd been in Afghanistan for a month. We were on our 30th patrol. This was on the 4th of March, 2007. Um, Three-fold patrol. Uh, first, we were going out to conduct coordination with the Army military police. They had a one of their platoons right on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And they um, so set the picture 2007 we couldn't go into Afghanistan or we couldn't go into Pakistan. So that was Pakistan became a training sanctuary. We built American taxpayers dollars, built this nice road connecting the capital cities of Afghanistan and Pakistan. So that was the first paved road. And so what was going on right on this border town is we were planning this mission. Um, and to get through to the area where we wanted to, we had to go through this place called body co It's the first town on the Afghan side. So uh, basically think that you have a training sanctuary in Pakistan, all these foreign fighters are getting radicalized 
you know, they go through their like equivalent of Bud's Jihad version in Pakistan. And now instead of summiting a 14,000 foot summit in uh, the Tora Bora Mountains covered with snow, February, March, they're just coming across the border. This road that we paved them, which is um, also fueling the this insurgency uh, as Afghanistan has all this opium and poppy and it's being exported to to fund terrorism being sold around the world. So we have this super highway that's really starting to accelerate the insurgency against uh, the coalition. Uh, so we had some information of these four suicide bombers. And so this first town, let's call it uh, equivalent of like, as Americans know, like an Amazon fulfillment center. And from this big distribution node, it's pushing out to the last mile or a few miles to people to get their jihad on. They're linking up with their handlers and going to Kabul, Kandahar, Herat, wherever to get the fight on with infidel. Uh, we knew where these four suicide bombers were at, uh, very reliable. And uh, that morning we go in to assess the pattern of life before our plan was to go back after, for the, after we conduct a liaison uh, to go do a meet and greet. So the, the first phase was meet with Army, military, police, uh, make sure that we can uh, set up there for a quick reaction force and make sure this was a female Army lieutenant, that she was good with having us stage. And uh, what had previously happened uh, prior to that, which the Army colonel that we worked with said, hey, we cannot afford to have another Operation Red Wings. What happened to the frogs will never happen again. You will have a dedicated, quick reaction force able to immediately reinforce any of your operation. Do you understand it? Yes, sir. Got it. So, you know, I'm the commanding officer. I'm going to make sure we have a bomb-proof plan at that patrol base where she had her military police. So we go out there to do forward unit coordination face-to-face. -face. She says, yeah, no problem. Then we go and do a recce because they wanted us up in the mountains, in the Torbor Mountains. So we do a mounted uh, reconnaissance and still March, beginning of March, still snow covered. Some of it's starting to melt, so it's, it's muddy, it's dangerous. Um, and armored vehicles that have these 600-pound uh, doors that are overweighted, so you can easily slide and get these things rolled over. But uh, that was the second phase is to do a mounted reconnaissance as high up as we could go. We were looking at uh, some of our imagery, figuring out where we could patrol, where we could get up there in the snow melt. Because my aviation, I was not a pilot, but my background working with aviation, I had, from the time we got there, myself as a commanding officer, continually requesting aviation support to get up into the Torbor Mountains. Uh, denied, denied, denied. You know, so they were like, why aren't you getting up in the mountains? We don't have aviation assets at all. You won't. They did approve the very first one. They proved it very quick and easy. We did a visual reconnaissance uh, in Army CH-47s, and then those CH-47s sat on that airfield indefinitely, doing nothing right there on our base. Uh, so, so we were figuring we'll just go do a dismounted or mounted reconnaissance. So we we're that was our second phase, and the third phase was come back in that town and do a meet and greet with tribal elders. Uh, because at that time, it wasn't like Iraq where if you knew where the bad people were, you could just go action it. This was the new counterinsurgency strategy, the hearts and minds. You, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt. You start seeing this now with the law enforcement. You know, you, 
you can't go get a bad guy. You got to wait for him to kill again. Um, and hopefully you catch him in the act. Uh, so we, as we go into this town, the pattern life had completely changed. As soon as we got on the paved road from the, the mountainous desert that we were in and uh, start heading west into this village of Body Co, complete shift in baseline. Now it's not the hustle and bustle with men, women, children at the market. It is just fighting age men line up on both sides of the road. As soon as you know, we had six vehicles in our patrols, as soon as all six of our convoys on the road, I was like, watch out, boom, car bomb blows up in the front of the patrol, right on the like the bumper of the second vehicle. Detonates. This was a van filled with mortar rounds and fuel. So as you've seen, you know, they they started to develop uh, working on the psyche, not just a blast putting a like shrapnel the size of your fingers into the human body, but when a a fighting man or woman is burning alive, what that sets into your mind, it really scares the hell out of people not wanting. So this fuel burnt uh, parts of the trees over 100 feet in the air. I mean, it was a massive car bomb. Immediately after that, just to the, the left, uh, perpendicular, somebody was driving a sports utility vehicle. He had three Muldoons hanging out the windows, firing AK-47s, coming into T-Bone, the second vehicle in our patrol that had been blown up. Uh, so we, going to what we call herringbone formation, we stop uh, you know, Marines. At that time, we have a Marine doctrine for ambush, and then we have a special operations, you know, convoy operation patrol. Both doctrines say you, when you're attacked in ambush, you counterattack. So we do just that. We stop, counterattack, make quick work out of this vehicle. The driver ditches and goes literally into a ditch. The three guys made quick work. They're killed. The vehicle stops. Uh, immediately after that, and this is at 9 o'clock in the morning, broad daylight on a road. Then on the other side, on a right flank, in, into this depression was this dry riverbed. Um, not a lot of people People are saying, oh, you guys killed all these civilians. Like Where we were shooting at was complete perpendicular down a desert road. Nobody... And then the other side was into a dry riverbed that we were in an elevated position shooting from the road down into this dry riverbed where they had a, they were well-trained. You know, they had a suppressive element, element uh, providing suppressive fire, another advance bound towards us, and they were leaping, uh, coming into us in broad daylight, uh, firing at that second vehicle. Our first two vehicles aimed in and just destroyed, you know, these uh, dismounted troops, quick work. We were still receiving... Uh, sniper fire uh, from a hilltop which the army criminal investigative uh, labs use sill took the armor off our vehicles and determined that it was impacted by soviet uh, dragging off sniper rifle ammunition because the air force investigating officer that later investigated said his incredible experience as an air force investigator he opined that we had shot ourselves um <laughs> So, like, when you're in a column, vehicles in a row, that would take, uh, we had one guy, all of our vehicles were in, completely enclosed except for one, and that was the one that was hit with the car bomb. And that was, a, it had a steel, um, like, compartment, open air, so we can load a casualty. That was our ambulance, and it was the only one that was not completely enclosed. So it looked different, it looked and it was uh, less protected 
than the other vehicles, and that's the one that the enemy targeted. Did, they, uh, did you guys lose guys from that one? That was another miracle, no. Wow. So we had a guy, the turret gunner, got a piece of shrapnel on his bicep. He was on fire. He, he immediately stood up and immediately engaged that uh, Toyota Prado, the sports utility vehicle, is driving straight towards him. Jesus, while and, he was on fire. Yeah. <laughs> how, how is he doing now? Uh, so he doesn't have issues with it. I mean, he deployed with force recon in the height of the insurgency in Iraq. This deployment went on another deployment. I mean, uh, one guy got out uh, voluntarily. That was his plan. He was just going to go on this last hoorah with his force recon brothers. But the rest of us um, redeployed. One guy didn't medically get discharged. but So he went back out, um, as the rest of us did. Yeah, uh, and But mentally, he and the others don't have issues. Myself, the, the other guy who... Um, went to court, the co-defendant, you know, I was talking to him last weekend. Um, can't say what he does specifically, but um, the, the issue that all of us have had is not from anything that we've ever done in battle. We don't have, you know, I hear these guys, and I'm not saying they're not having issues because that some people, it's just not programmed into us to uh, see somebody's internal organs torn apart, their head if you're shot through in the tissue when it exits, is a, it's pretty horrific. Uh, but we were well trained to understand what that was going to look like and to visualize that and have people who've been there explain all that before we ever got to that time. Yeah. And the training that we received in force reconnaissance and Marine Special Operations was outstanding. But what we never expected and what's hard to deprogram is how you read the book, A Few Bad Men, how many people went after us so zealously yeah. to lock up. And when they <clears> knew, they they had all the proof that you you could ever ask for. And it's laid out in the book. Like, this is this guy's testimony. is boom, 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 boom. And then you read like Appendix 3, and you read 79 of these Afghan statements that are completely contradictory. And like General Mattis, who's a convenient authority, he's not an idiot. Yeah, He knew... He, his investigators collected all this information. And then you see Appendix 4, it was all the enemy activity in that village. He had that too. Yeah. He's, not a, he's not an idiot or fool, but he made a decision. And then he also, whether he made the direct decision, gave him a wink or a nod, or just was aloof, which I have a hard time believing that, but he allowed 49 people from the government to attack us and to use put a gag order, threatened to deport a Marine's family. They, they offered all of us to take polygraphs, but they only came after one other guy. You know, he's from Puerto Rico, but he had thick, you know, they were doing this ethnic targeting and trying to get him on a polygraph. Uh, and they gave him immunity. And he, he testified on the stand. Uh, but uh, if, you, if English is your second language and you're being interviewed or I should say interrogated and you're on a poly, you have a high propensity to show deception indicated if you're having to translate it in your brain. Yeah. So they use this technique on just a few, to include another Egyptian Marine, uh, Marine from Egyptian uh, ethnicity, just really trying to go after these guys and only these guys. Yeah, it's trying to make it like a weak link. 
Uh, I apologize for getting you off track. Uh, we'll, we'll get into some of the, the aftermath of the investigation here in a minute. But um, if you can go back to the guys on fire, pops yeah. up, starts shooting the uh, the bomb vehicle. Okay, we uh, have contact left. Guys ain't in. And uh, engaged to the left, engaged to the right after that. Um, we're not able to accurately see, but we're having impacts on our vehicle from the hilltop. So we didn't engage in that uh, region because we didn't have positive ID. So they dragged, the, the locals drag a vehicle across the road, blocking us in this kill zone, and a mob of unarmed men swarm at us in this kill zone. Uh, we were there for five minutes. So myself and another officer audibly and digitally uh, reported the incident as it happened. I remember, boom. I mean, when we detonated, you know, like, we're taking small arm fire, explosive device detonated on us. Um, so that was instantly received at our headquarters that the Army colonel was at. Um, they even said, we have a troops in contact. This was in the courtroom trial. Uh, testified that this happened. Um, so as soon as, you know, we knew, okay, there's four suicide bombers in this little village. One just went off on us. There's no reason to do, to drink chai with the tribal elders and see if they'll give us any information on if there's bad guys in this town. Clearly there are. Yeah, there's three more. Um, you don't get out of your most defensible position when your threat is shrapnel and fire being blasted at you. So um, we stayed there engaged. Uh, the vehicle that was blown up had its communication knocked out. So they use hand and arm signals for, for okay. And then uh, it could move. We were surprised because it got hit and drove through that fire. And from what we were looking at, I thought they're all dead. So, you know, we stopped engaged uh, as soon as we could assess that everyone is okay and that we can move. <clears throat> We, uh, the sergeant who was a turret gunner in vehicle one made a smart move, fired high above the heads of the unarmed mob. Uh, they cleared the, like parting the Red Sea so we could uh, bypass that vehicle they dragged across the road. Then we get back to the base. This was 20 minutes after our initial ambush against us. It was already, here's the second prong attack of the enemy. It's the information warfare arm, uh, as soon as we get back on the base, a gunnery sergeant comes up to us and says, sir, it's already out there on the BBC radio that you guys have killed women, killed civilians. And then we start getting this dog pile, New York Times, everybody, Marines, slaughter, you know, men, women, and children, uh, Afghans, their testimony, they're saying that we were drunk. I don't know if you ever heard of this technique, Mike. They said, uh, this is the Afghan. <laughs> this, this is what they said, that we were drunk and we used slingshots and hang I don't know if you... Ever heard of this technique where you pull a pin <laughs> off a hand grenade, put it into a slingshot, and you're on a top of a turret and yeah. fire it? They said that we did that to make it look like we staged this uh, explosive device and that we were drunk after that, and we went door-to-door -door sport killing. Literally, they said men, women, children, uh, farm animals. And then we went back later to cover it up and to police up the scene. But I mean, how did you guys get out of uh, the actual ambush itself? One, like once the all the the mob parted, did you guys just bail from there? Yeah. So once they split from uh, the the west egress point, uh, which was where we were uh, 
driving to the west. We just got our, drove around the vehicle that was on the road. So we drove off the side of the road and got around it and headed right okay. back to our base. So that, that ended the engagement. At that it point. did. Did you guys, uh, I mean, so you guys engaged the one vehicle that, um, and then some other guys that were down in the um, dry riverbed. riverbed. Yes. Uh, how many total guys did you guys engage, do you know? Probably engaged like two dozen guys. Now, also, immediately after we left that kill zone, there were vehicles that we used escalation of force. So we fired machine guns in as we're trained to in front of the vehicles. And then when they don't stop, you shoot into the uh, engine block. And uh, But we never had to go up and, and shoot any civilians yeah. themselves. But when... There's a big, massive car bomb that you see for miles. There was a picture of a in non-governmental organizational worker. She took this picture that she presented in the court. This is a massive car bomb, a van. Um, and then you're in other vehicles, and you're driving on the other side of the road going beak to beak against armored American vehicles. You've heard, unless you're deaf, literally, you've heard gunfire, and you're driving head-on at a high rate of speed. So yeah, we did uh, use escalation of force and those could have been, um, I mean, this village, anything that's controlled by the Taliban right there next to that border, I can understand why some people are doing what they're doing. Uh, even if they didn't have a suicide bomber in there, um, that's not their normal pattern in life to drive straight at an armored vehicle. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we did use escalation of force against two other vehicles on the way back. Uh, they immediately... We shot into their engine blocks and they got off the road. They quickly realized like that was a yeah. good way to encourage them to comply. Um, but uh, yeah. It's, so then you make it back to base. Uh, almost immediately you realize that there's rumors swirling about what didn't happen. Uh, how, how did it go from once you got back until like you really realized that the shit had hit the fan and, and it was going to be a nightmare? Yes. So... We did our immediate debrief uh, right prior to that. We had a little chapel set up there on our, our little compound area. I went into our little medical aid station. And our uh, chief, our, we don't have medics in the Marines, so we have our corpsman, Navy corpsman, uh, trained in the same special operations medical course that everybody from special ops gets. And he was treating uh, the sergeant who had some uh, shrapnel in his arm, uh, I gave him a phone to call his wife, said it completely unclassified, just let her know you're okay because somebody from the command is going to do it and it's probably going to scare her to death. She needs to hear from you. So that happened. I immediately went into our debrief and quickly <laughs> after we talked to the, what happened in the first vehicle, I'm trying to get our information from uh, from the angles I couldn't see everything. I get called out because the... U.S. Army uh, Infantry Conventional Battle Space Commander. He's a uh, Army Colonel, John Nicholson. In his, he had a major, he was the same rank as myself, he's in the Army, that, that called me, and this major's panicking. I don't use that word lightly, but it, it hits a nerve in my body when I hear somebody, you know, we're all alive. They know that. We're back on the base. We're inside a wire. and But he's frantic. These are career-minded people that, you know, they ended up getting promoted. But he's, he's, 
you need to and we don't report there's no organizational chart that has me reporting to him it's a courtesy that we give him information and i was trying to collect that information i wasn't being disrespectful at all anybody that knows me realizes i'm not an arrogant pompous person whatsoever i'm getting information so i can give it accurately to you in a timely manner and uh, this guy's freaking out uh so uh, then we also start getting additional calls from, we have this liaison in the book, and he betrays us very, very severely. This is a Marine liaison at the Army Special Operations Command. So there's two Army colonels wanting information, their staffs. Uh, so I have our executive officer and then the platoon commander, the other Marine captain that was on the patrol with me, hey, draft this up send it up to our higher headquarters on the army side i'll go you know because there's a colonel on our little base i'll pay the courtesy and respect face to face to feed the beast and you know, this has started to get up pretty pretty high level pretty quick international news our u.s national news they did start a riot in the nearest major city in jalalabad that led to pressure on the provincial governor sharzai to uh, pressure the president of Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai, who publicly condemned what we did. Um, and then five days later, you know, we had given everything they can. They sent an Air Force uh, colonel over to investigate this. He was the chief of staff for General Kearney. He was the Army two-star general in charge of all special operations in the Middle East. Uh, so he sends this Air Force colonel. He investigated the first seven Marines, no Afghans yet, just the first seven Marines. And we all said the same thing, <laughs> different perspectives. The decision's made to kick us out. Uh, so he comes in from the Persian Gulf there in Gutter and starts to investigate us. And the decision was already made just to, you know, calm things down. These guys are sacrificial lamb. They're going to go. And uh, that's when the two-star Army general, uh, ranger down in tampa starts making all these comments to the washington post repeated comments in the press during on he hands investigation over the marine corps the marine corps assigns it to the conventional marine corps which was general mattis he's in charge of all marines in the middle east so you don't ever see these cases where army green berets or navy seals are handled outside of naval special warfare or U.S. Army Special Operations Command, but the Marine Corps understands, hey, it's, I'll, I'll defer. I, I don't want to touch this myself. They do the punch as pilot and give it to Jim Mattis. That leads to the dogpiling. That leads to these interrogations. Read about it in the book. It'll just really, don't read about it before dinner or <laughs> after dinner or before bed. It will when you read the comments that people made on Amazon and other places, social media, it, it's so disturbing to them. Yeah. This is not what we're supposed to do. And you wonder why we lost the war after 20 years. These guys are using weapons designed two years after World War II and homemade explosives, and we lost to guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have our own, we step on our own dick nonstop. What, um, what happened to you guys afterwards? So what was your, your path from when they decided to kick you out until you actually got out. Yeah. So interesting question. So during the whole trial and people say, well, you know, they 
presumption innocence, right? That's not. <laughs> that's never. It's really that's, never the case. I mean, no, and that's not how they treated it when they interrogated us and what was going on to the Marines. And you read this stuff in the book. It's just it's most unethical and illegal conduct of senior officers. But they, on the other side, they had to have known because there's other places they could have put me in charge of 10th typewriter battalion or something. They put me in charge of training for the entire, this would be like the training officer for all of Naval Special Warfare. Yeah. If if you had a guy that you thought was a sociopath that was on the patrol, he's the commander, just did a mass murder like Lieutenant Calais of Melee of the 21st century, you wouldn't put that guy in charge of your entire Marine Special Operations commands, the, the component training program, no way. So they knew what the truth was but how they were trying to drill down and interrogate these guys that they felt they had some sense of vulnerability, it's, that can never be repeated. But it, unfortunately, it's going on right now because America, the, the military, the Department of Defense, America, listen, it is not just the largest, not by assets, it's not a Fortune 500 company, but by number of employees. So you add up all active reserve, contractor, civilian, at that time, you stack the number two and three employers, Amazon, Walmart, it still dwarfed its number of employees. And as far as lethality, by far, is the most powerful and the largest in number. And when there's nobody that is willing to say stop, but one man stood up for us in May 2007 during this in investigation, and that was uh, Congressman Walter Jones. Where is he from? North Carolina, he was the district congressman for where Camp Lejeune, where we were stationed. But he, he did this after he heard uh, Colonel John Nicholson stand up. Uh, he was in a televising from Afghanistan. This is the Army Conventional Battle Space Commander who made this. You can see it out there on the Internet. He says, this is a terrible, terrible mistake. This is a stain on our honor. Marines killed innocent Afghan civilians. And he's, this is to a Pentagon press corps from Afghanistan. And the lady from Reuters asked this question, and he says, Colonel Nicholson says, I can't answer that. We are facilitating naval criminal investigation. Who's here? They have an ongoing investigation. I'm like, well, if you can't answer that question, why do you say, not just in public to the Afghans, but you said to the Pentagon press corps that we murdered innocent Afghan civilians? And also, Major General Kearney was making these comments to the Washington Post. Um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and some people think, you know, General Frank Pace is like a legend. He's just a, you know, a saint, St. Frank, St. Francis. He had uh, comments to the press. He said he spoke to the Commandant of the Marine Corps. At that time, it was a four-star Marine General, uh, James Conway. And he said the Commandant said he was very disappointed in the conduct of those Marines. The Sergeant Major, the senior enlisted for the Marine Corps, Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps at that time, the day he retired, made comments to the Leatherneck magazine saying just derogatory comments. So you have the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, you have the Commandant of the Marine Corps, you have the two-star Army General in charge of all special forces in the Middle East, you have the Battle Space Commander from Afghanistan all publicly making comments in their own words to the press condemning us while there's an ongoing criminal investigation. So when you look at America as a society based upon laws, Right under the apex of the Supreme Court, it says equal justice under the law. That doesn't apply to our military, Mike. Yeah. 
No, I, I've seen it. I mean, Eddie Gallagher's been on here a couple times. He, he, I mean, the the story that he went through is uh, is equally sickening, and there's fucking dozens of them, unfortunately. Um, from from your standpoint, or, or from from your um, journey, I guess they put you in charge of of all training. Um, and then did you, were you still in after that? What, what else did you do after that while this was all going on? So from when the ambush happened, I served seven more years. Um, they did put adverse material, which the future commandant of the Marine Corps, Joe Dunford became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was one of the last, uh, four star generals in charge of all of Afghanistan as well. He lied to five members of Congress, like I mentioned, uh, said there's no adverse material. So because that adverse material, which I tried repeatedly to have withdrawn from my record. So the Marine Corps, like all the services, it's up or out. If you don't get promoted, you have service limitations based on your rank. So I had to get out at um, just under the 27-year mark and assigned, and that's as far as they let me serve. But um, as soon as we were acquitted, in our case, like I said, it was the longest is the number of days in the courtroom, three and a half weeks for any war crime trial in Af- the, war of Af- at the war in Afghanistan. And then uh, it was the largest as far as numbers of civilians wounded and killed, 69 total, they said, uh, by machine guns. So, uh, but as soon as that was over, they, they didn't use any legal terms. This was a court of inquiry. They didn't use the word, legal term is innocent guilty or dismissed at the end of the case on 29 January, 2008, they waited four months until Memorial day weekend. And there's few holidays that the Pentagon goes down to a skeleton crew. So they did a Friday night news dump to Estes Thompson, only one source in the media before they were happy to tell everybody. Now when they adjudicate it, they said one news source, Estes Thompson, the Associated Press on Friday night, Right before you, Memorial Day. Right before Memorial Day. News cycles, totally different. You come back on Wednesday morning, and they said we acted appropriately. So you've been in, that's even unfathomable to use some milly mouth weak words in a debrief if you're a frog or any special operator that they act. You're just saying these guys killed women and children, mass murder, something every religion and every nation on the globe condemn. And you're going to say, well, they acted appropriately. So writing occurs in Afghanistan again. International press dumps on us for years, just continuous drive-bys. We go back to serving, you know, go back to our jobs. You don't sue, good luck, if you try to sue the government. And uh, capital offenses, when you're defending, you have to get a, you're you're smart if you get a civilian defense attorney. Um, And they're not cheap. Yeah. But you just go back to your work. And so I said, hey, I want to go back overseas. Went back to Okinawa uh, the second time, three years. That time I just got married. Uh, so the little wedding gift that the Marine Corps left me was uh, on our honeymoon, right after the announcement on uh, Memorial Day, they said, uh, they told my attorney, tell Fred Galvin he's got 30 days to get back here or or." or in 30 days, he's heading to a board of inquiry, which is an involuntary separation board. Uh, so at that time, I'd been in 21 years here. Their, their thing is to kick you out. We, My uh, wife that I just married, she was in the Marine until officer. She wanted to go, and we took 
an assignment to Okinawa, Japan. So she's going over with her without me for three years. And uh, I'm in the Marine Corps. Congratulations. Yeah. On your honeymoon, they said, call him and have him come back. So they're using this. The military is it's different than the civilian world, but this authoritarian, like they waited until you got on your honeymoon yeah. and then they ordered your military defense attorney to tell you to get your butt back to Lejeune because you're going to an involuntary separation board, um, which they did. They dragged that on for six months. So she's over in Japan now. Uh, we'd been living, I was on the East Coast. She was on the West Coast. Now she's in Okinawa and you're back yeah. in Lejeune. Well, she's on the East Coast of Okinawa, Japan, yeah. uh, on the other side of the globe, uh, makes it convenient. And then they say, yeah, you're going to go to this trial. But we'll kick the can down the road, drag it out for six months. For that six-month period, do they, I'm just curious, do, like, do they put you up in like the officer's barracks there, or is it totally on your own? Like, how, Is that considered no. a... I, w- I was stationed in Lejeune. I was still serving with the Marine Special Operations Command, so I've stayed in my little uh, apartment. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So my pattern of life was I was still working as a training officer other than I'd been told I can go over to Okinawa, but surprise, we're going to send you to this involuntary separation board to kick you out. So you may go over there. You just be a civilian. Yeah. <laughs> These wow. were intention to kick you out. So I, w- I was a planet. You know, every day we're waiting to hear when this thing will start. They said, get this guy back from his honeymoon because he's got 30 days. He's going to be in this thing. They drag it out for six months. The day before it's supposed to start, they dismiss it. Wow. Now you can go to Japan. So I flew over there to be with my wife on Christmas Day, uh, fly land, and um, go to Okinawa. From there, start training with all these foreign countries, and then we do another. I volunteered to go out as the operations officer for 3rd Reconnaissance Battalion back to Afghanistan, this time in uh, the Helmand province uh, in southern Afghanistan, in specifically the Sangin Valley. And there's a situation in the book. If you thought what we talked about was mildly amusing, piqued your interest, read about what happened on, because it, it's even more disgusting. And <laughs> the, the next deployment into Afghanistan, what happens is even more bizarre, more unethical. And you start to see this. How, even the Navy General Counsel, Catherine Kessmeyer, that signed that letter on the 2019, completely clearing us. Uh, said that you know this was unjust on the second deployment to Afghanistan. What happened against me was immoral, and um, there was a Navy lawyer that I never got to meet. Uh, she was, as a result of that second uh, deployment to Afghanistan, this uh, I stood up to uh, my commanding officer who was dropping. He dropped a 500-pound bomb 34 meters away from one of our uh, platoons. Five, Followed up with two uh, high Mars surface fired rockets. You can't drop any of these within 180 meters. Uh, <clears throat> and then uh, told me afterwards, I'm willing to sacrifice lives of these Marines. And I need to make sure you will too. Uh, had a problem with that. Is uh, a military officer, the oath I took, there is some differences than the oath I took when I was 17 years old and I was enlisted. Enlisted oath says, that you will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the officers appointed over you. The officer's oath is to the Constitution alone, that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. 
against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that you take that, you know, without any mental reservation. Um, because they, our founding fathers must have really realized that whether you're King George at that time or any man or woman, you can become compromised and that our Constitution is the document that you must uh, swear your allegiance to. And um, I knew that this guy is the commanding officer. Title 10 says he's the boss. He can do, I mean, he did what he did. Uh, but ordering me to do the same thing in the future is knowingly going to kill innocent Marines, possibly innocent Afghan civilians, needlessly. Um, I was requesting that he consider these a hellfire, which has only 10 pounds of high explosives, uses a shape charge to basically implode. You can use it really close in, or a Griffin missile, which is essentially a laser-guided javelin, four pounds of it, high explosives, shape charge, instead of blasting shrapnel three-dimensionally. Um, and this is what I had that knowledge of from dropping all this aviation ordinance. I'm telling him to use the least invasive. He went the biggest, uh, had some significant fallout with the Marines that those bombs landed near. But anyway, they, he relieved me, sent me back to Okinawa. They sent me to a involuntary separation board. This time they actually sent me to the board instead of dismissing it. They sent me to the board, uh, for, uh, substandard performance. I've actually, you know, at that time I'd been in like 25 years and there's a block on your evaluations that says performance. Yeah. I've never had anybody market substandard. Now, some of these leaders that hated me dinged me for judgment, but none of them ever marked anything anywhere low as far as performance. But uh, so we had this little one-day trial. The panel was unanimous. They dismissed everything. And then uh, they, they said, you're going you're gonna to leave Okinawa. Talk to the... Uh, so I wanted to go back to the West Coast, uh, maybe Hawaii. Now they sent me to a uh, East Coast <laughs> to, to the Second Marine Division. Yeah, actually, <laughs> they, they they didn't even send me there to Lejeune. They sent me to a Navy base there in Norfolk. Oh wow! <laughs> but uh, and that's where I retired out of. Yeah. Um, one thing that struck me as as curious is um, that you know after all of the bombardment that you had from it sounds like kind of specifically Mattis or, or it was under his watch, thumb, whatever, um, that the 49 investigators and the four uh, attorneys and, and what have you, that everybody was hitting you so hard with, that did he not follow up with uh, with that case after that happened to, to even let you go back over there? Like I, I would think that if he was that hell-bent on prosecuting you, even if, you know, they deemed we acted accordingly and, and it didn't go anywhere that, that he would make it his, um, you know, kind of mission to, to not have you go back over overseas or did, did that just not play a role or interesting because I don't, he became in charge of uh, all U S forces in the Middle East. He was a CENTCOM commander so general. Too small a fish. I, yeah, I think he was in charge of so much. He probably didn't even realize that that was ever even in my yeah. intention. So I went over to Okinawa, and that's uh, where, <clears throat> at that time, most forces were deploying to Iraq or Afghanistan from the east or west coast. 
Okinawa is a land that, you know, time forgot. And so I went over there, but they were de- deploying from Okinawa too. But it was just something that's probably, I would only, I'm assuming that it was not on his radar. This guy wants to go to Okinawa. Yeah. He's not requesting to go back or stay in the Marine Special Operations. Do you know if he was aware of the verdict or non-verdict, as it were? Do you know if he if he even had knowledge of, of what they determined? I can't. I mean, I've never even met the man, so I don't know for sure. But, I mean, he just left there. So he turned over uh, during the investigation. He was the commanding general. So when all the mayhem was going on. But then in the courtroom, at that time where they actually went to trial, he turned it over to Lieutenant General Helland, who, who was a convening authority. And General Helland also allowed this misconduct where you're continually bringing the media out of the courtroom during all defense. So if you look over some past commanding officers and operations officers and people who were my mentors, Colonel George Smith, uh, Colonel George or Brian Boudreau, uh, Colonel Pete Petronzio, uh, Colonel uh, Greg Sturdivant, all these people were witnesses, character witnesses, hadn't been in Afghanistan, weren't there when this happened. Nothing classified to talk about. Now you'll see, you can go on the internet and see all these witnesses. They had their testimonies in the media. You won't find anyone that had exculpatory evidence. You won't find anyone that had any, just character witnesses. Uh, none of that. They provided a, and again, this goes back to information warfare. We expect the enemy to do it. And, and that doesn't blow my mind that the enemy was causing all this stuff in the media, but we are not, it's illegal do against your own troops against American people and when you distort the truth and paint now the jury heard everything and they made their decision they made it right uh, but the the convening authority was allowing or directing the media to constantly be moved out during all exculpatory witnesses all character witnesses they, they didn't just put them out in the lobby, Mike. They put them two buildings over and on the second floor so they couldn't hear anything. So when bad shit's being said, bring the media in. Yeah. If it's not being said, get them the fuck out. That was their policy. Yeah. Uh, so you guys were accused of killing 69 civilians, correct? Killing 19 and wounding 50. Okay. Total of 69 wounded or killed, they said. Um, do you know, uh, or not do you know, from the investigation, was it ever determined uh, how how many, if any, civilians were actually killed? It wasn't. It was never, there was never a, I mean, after all that investigation, they never, no. there, was, there was no, I mean, do you know what the results of the investigation did conclude? I mean, what, what did it conclude? Yeah, it said that, uh, you know, their final statement, that we acted appropriately in accordance with the rules of engagements for a complex ambush in accordance with the techniques, tactics, and procedures for a complex. Uh, I kind of messed that one up, but they acted appropriately according to the techniques, tactics, and procedures for a complex ambush. And in there's some things that are still classified, but they, they opine that there could have been some civilians killed. So they do know that the only body that was found, and this is why they use a court of inquiry instead of a court martial, is there's no prima facie evidence. There's no body bullets and blood and all this. They, they found a torso without any heads or shoulders and they that was the only body they found they believed that that was the afghan national army that that was the body of the suicide bomber they didn't find anybody else's body they there was a navy captain it's equivalent to an air force marine or army colonel 
who was a staff judge advocate who was the legal mentor to the Afghan investigator. In his notes, he said he saw bullets inside, bullet casings, expended rounds inside the sports utility vehicle of the Toyota Prado. Um, he also, after he saw that, uh, you know, our courtroom, our trial was, you know, publicly being uh, broadcast, he he sent a letter to the colonel that was in charge of the, on the Marine side, the senior Marine attorney, and he was a legal advisor to the court of inquiry. He said, I have some things I would like to talk about, about how this was being handled on the U.S. side. He, because he was kind of the liaison that would, he was for mentoring the Afghan legal advisor, but he'd also talk on the U.S. side. But he, you know, but none of that was ever investigated. Like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you pull the thread if you say, hey, I'm a Navy captain, a very senior legal officer in the Navy. I'm here with the Afghan, and I don't, the Afghan investigator said there is evidence that the Marines were ambushed. That was, that was in, from the Afghan investigator, but the Marine, the, uh, the U.S. investigation, he, which he said he's uneasy at how that's being handled, they, they had this one-sided story uh, that believed, just read Appendix 3 of the book. Just If you just start off reading that and like, these guys believe that? How could Mattis believe that? I mean, it's all contradictory. None of it makes sense. And, and these guys aren't stupid, but whether they wanted Marine Special Operations Command to survive, um, you know, whether politically, here's another thing, Mike, too, and I don't have any proof of this, but like I was saying, there was this very bloody war, the surge being pushed in 2007 with this massive, there's over 100,000 Americans in Iraq, and that thing was melting down on CNN. What do you have in 2007? Well, you're going into a general election for the presidency. Who, between Obama and McCain. So you take your pick, and now, I didn't realize this being a guy from Eastern Kansas, we're political pawns. This stuff is going down. It's being broadcast all over international media that now you got these Marines wiping out women and children. What will McCain do? You'll have more of this. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was being painted and people saw the tea leaves. Hey, um, people that have done these investigations, they were a little bit light or too lenient. Now let's dogpile these things and. That's the direction it went, and we were the ones that got wire brushed. And so, after all of the the investigations, the mudslinging, the accusations, the coercion of witnesses, et cetera, et cetera, after all of that, the only thing that the that the government or the prosecutorial side had had in terms of of what their statement was was they acted accordingly. Appropriately. appropriately in accordance with blah 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 that's that that's it yeah that's it and and then and then after that subsequently there was no uh remedial or consequential action taken towards any of you guys reprimand wise i did have uh, adverse information that's what general done so but that was placed in my official military personnel file basically ending my career and but in terms of like actual judicial punishment there was not nothing like uh -huh. no no fine, no reduction in rank, no. Yeah, no. Um, yeah they, they were just playing the games. Yeah. So they, they didn't have any findings of fact against me. So, 
or any of the guys? Uh, one was punished from an incident that was entirely separate five days later. That was on the SCI side, oh, and okay. we can't really... But, but it was an information thing. It wasn't a... That was... Um, <laughs> I realized that if the military wanted to come after me and I said anything that I'm not supposed to say, they would. So I'm I'm not a... I'm careful about my words for, <laughs> for lack of being... Yeah reciprocated against but uh this had nothing at all whatsoever to do with the ambush and that's the god's honest truth but yeah they came after it they did punish him uh that marine's still serving which yeah. is phenomenal but he be this guy uh stud total stud uh hit with a 12.7 <coughs> millimeter heavy machine gun in the battle of fallujah they all they wanted to cut off his leg rebuilt it he's he's a stud and uh still serving uh in that community just a hero but um my thing is they turned it into a carolina witch hunt you know it was supposed to be like what the comment on the marine corps said investigate the 4 march 2007 ambush that's what he said to do and then so you had an investigation that came from the comment on the marine corps you'd better do what the comment on the marine corps says and now you start the trial the the release that everybody was told here's the information operation the release everybody's told was this is to understand what happened on the 4th of March 2007. And okay, okay, got it. And, you know, so now you're going to take the whole life cycle of the company and look up everybody's, get the proctologist in there and examine what in the hell's going on in every aspect of your life. I mean, if you don't want to turn it into a Carolina witch hunt, which they did, you're going to find something. Uh, so, yeah, one, uh, you know, you're going to find one guy in the barracks with a seventh can of beer and you're, you're out of regs and yeah. you're gonna run you up the flagpole. Yeah, but nothing to do with that day. That's zero. That's incredible. Um, it's, it's incredible in the most sickening manner. But but uh, on that too, Mike. So this started a lot of the information warfare for. The, so the media was teasing this other event and trying to say like, hey, there was something wrong and it was a conspiracy. It was tried to be covered up because they didn't cover it up. It, there was the thought that yeah, let's. So they kept trying to tease that, like these Marines killed these civilians and they tried to cover it up. So they kept saying that. And so when we would go to the cross-examination to defend ourselves, media had, we don't have anything classified to talk about. Yeah, We're talking about this garden variety gun battle. Media, we're going to closed session. So this didn't happen once. Three and a half weeks in the trial, boom, boom, boom. They, they didn't want to put them in the lobby, keep them on the second deck above Andy's steakhouse it was, it was just sickening that uh, yeah. this distortion of the truth. And that's why people, the question that people ask the most is, has the Marine Corps said anything about this now? <laughs> they haven't said a word. And they, this book shows where every single body is buried. It has it down to the degrees, minutes, thousands of seconds. I mean, it's down to the, you know, the one meter level this is where that's at it's radioactive they don't want to say a single word about this yeah. and of yeah. course so there's been no reprimand for any any higher ups for doing anything wrong right they're all scot-free no. and no no problem right no in the book and that's what it took 11 years to get this declassified long legal fight it uses their own it's their own words what they said under they swore to it they either said it voluntarily to the press and it's their 
verbatim words, not paraphrased, not taken out of context. It's it's what they said in this dialogue with attorneys and what they admitted. And then uh, this guy, Nicholson, admitted on the record that he was wrong, that if I had seen that information, and they said, well, you had it. Oh, I must have misunderstood it. And then he says, now I would have taken a knee and drink water, basically giving these guys the benefit of the doubt. And then he goes four years after that, he brings he's working at the Pentagon as a general officer, brings this same reporter from the New York Times, Carlotta Gall, she's writing this book, The Wrong Enemy, invites her into the Pentagon, and st- even after he admitted that he was wrong and that we didn't do anything wrong, then he says to Carlotta Gall on page 116 of The Wrong Enemy, is a problem with leadership, training, and one other thing, but he continues to perpetuate that we you know, were guilty, that we had done something wrong, uh, perpetuates this lie because he's thinking that my testimony was classified. Yeah. It'll never see the light of day. And this uncovers it. And you read this stuff and you're like, this happened in America? Like you said, it's sickening. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Like it's, you know, it, it's sickening. I, I will say like I'm, I'm unfortunately not that surprised. Like, I mean, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people over the last few years and um, you know, there's there's just too many examples of of what you're talking about, and and it's uh, man, it's just uh, you know, to me the the most encapsulating words that I can say that that you know really encompass everything that that I feel about it is heartbreaking. Yes. You know, it's just like the the generations after generations of young men and women that volunteer to serve their country uh, to the best of their ability with the assumption that our government is going to use them to the best of our collective country's uh, requirement, you know, is, uh, is, is heartbreaking that there's so many people that are willing to potentially give their lives, uh, you know, for a small group of, of elitist fuck jobs that, uh, that are willing to steamroll them and, and um, you know, just completely stab them in the fucking back. It's terrible. Um, you know, like when young kids nowadays ask me like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about joining or, Hey, I want to be a seal or whatever. Most of the time I'm like, I wouldn't fucking do it. Honestly, you know, I mean, not with the way shit is now. I I wouldn't do it. Um, you know, and I hate to say that because I, I want our nation to be strong. I want an all volunteer force to continue to, to be all volunteer and, and be, um, you know, proficient and competent enough to be able to be the world's premier fighting force. But with the people that are, are making the decisions on behalf of our nation's military, um, I, I don't think it's a good idea, you know, and, and it and it pains me to fucking say that, but I, I really don't think it is. Um, once you did actually finally get out after all of this bullshit, what, where was your head at as far as like now what? Interesting question. So a year before, like a lot of guys, you know, I had a retirement date assigned to me. So I didn't want to, I was trying to get this adverse material removed so I could stay in. People probably think you're crazy. (laughs) You want to stay in after they tried to run you up the flagpole twice. Um, Well, I lost. And so I was trying to Apply for jobs. Applied for grad school. Got accepted to here at UT Dallas, where I started. Uh, our sister got diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer, so that's what brought me back to Kansas. 
so, but I started out here where I got accepted, uh, took that first semester online before transferring back and finished my MBA back in Kansas. So my mind, to answer your question, was on job hunt. And so before I got out, I was applying for all these jobs and learning. The military has a lot of resources that you know help you with the resume and this and that, and there's classes and courses. And I started going to all these things, trying to make my resume laser guided to get a job and uh, talking to my friend's uh, wife's sister this morning. She works at Amazon. She's like, oh, you applied to Amazon? What do you I was trying to be a material handler, a yard hostler, some of these entry-level basic jobs handling totes and products. And I'm not trying to say I, I wasn't thinking C-suite. Any, I was, yeah. <clears throat> was going to be, you know, frontline foot soldier on any any company. But when you're painted as the poster boy for the largest mass murder in, you know, yeah. the U.S. history in the 21st century. People aren't exactly asking you to babysit yeah. their kids. Yeah, let's bring Jeffy Dahmer <laughs> over and... So oh, it shit. was it was hard. I started my own business, ran that for five years, sold it, and then took a job in Hawaii back with uh, the Department of Defense, and I worked a couple different uh, uh, assignments there for four years. Can you talk about those or are those? Yeah. So I strangely I was doing a job with the Joint Interagency Task Force. That's a counter narcotics task force. I was a uh, rep for. Uh, mainland Southeast Asia there in the Golden Triangle and then um, had that job and then a couple other in the information operations uh, for both Special Operations Command Pacific and then for the Marine uh, Marine Forces Pacific and then I had this opportunity uh, that I'm at Tesla now uh, to be their training guy for uh, North America on the distribution side so from just think distribution like an Amazon fulfillment center like has all these parts and products that if you want solar panels or parts for your vehicle after the market uh, from floor mats to fenders to replacement windshields to you name it yeah uh, and then we are also the downstream partner for the parts advisors at all the service centers from uh, Toronto to Mexico City and we also took uh, ownership of Asia Pacific minus China yeah so, you know, you know, taking one step back and thinking of the fact that you, after all of this, you got out and a few years later got hired by the DOD again. One of my favorite adages is what you do speak so loud I can't hear what you say. To me, the fact that the Department of Defense hired you after all of that tells you everything you need to know about what they really think, you know, or, or the problem that they don't really have with you if they're willing to rehire you as a civilian after honorably separating you 27 years of, of service and then rehiring you as a civilian contractor. I mean, that, that tells you what you need to know, you know, I mean that in and of itself, like if you don't want to believe anything else, that the fact that they're willing to separate you honorably and then rehire you as a contractor, uh, tells you where their fucking heads at and, and that, uh, that it was all bullshit. But, um, I, I'm, I'm curious with Tesla. Have you met Elon Musk? No, no. Uh, do you drive a Tesla? I've ordered one. Yeah. I have to wait for it just like everybody else. Oh, shit. <laughs> what, uh, what did, did you get the plaid? No, I got the Model Y. Yeah. Um, I, what, what is your, I mean, how long have you worked for Tesla now? Uh, I reported in there on 25 April. Okay. So not, not a, a ton of time, but I mean, long enough to understand, you know, the culture and whether or not you like the job and, and whatever. I mean, obviously you're a little biased. You're currently working for them, but what, what do you think of, of the company as a whole? 
I wish I saw this leadership in the Marine Corps. Yeah. I wish I saw, I mean, Elon, when he says, I can't speak for financials of the company by contract, but it says, uh, you know, when I hear him say, people need to return to work. He says, I work six days a week when possible, seven. Here's a guy that founded the company, works on the factory floor. Um, I wish I saw that leadership in constantly. And I'm not trying to say besmirch a lot of good leaders who are in the military, who I saw and served with in the military. There's a lot of good ones, but there's few. Uh, but here's a man who's like totally focused and uh, has the bandwidth and he's completely committed. You know, when they have these change of command ceremonies in the military and they hand the flag over and he says, this is a sign of complete commitment. That's what I see yeah. uh, at Tesla. And when you're talking about, you know, robots that they're going to come out with in the future and robo taxi, these things are going dis- to, I mean, a single guy like me, if I had a robot, <laughs> may think about getting married again, you know, uh, but you know, there's this electric semi coming out next month and I mean, just some amazing, amazing innovation. And yeah. as a real, and literally I feel like I'm in the grunts again, because like on the distribution side with products, just moving that stuff compared to these people, these engineers from India and Germany and all over that are, you know, creating this stuff in Silicon Valley, that big brains, uh, you know, it just leaves you, in all, like you've, while we were in uniform fighting and doing all these things with our bodies, these guys were in a classroom and racking their brains in as intense a effort as we gave physically, they gave mentally. And you see, these guys are the modern day samurai yeah. of the engineering world. And it's just something so far from my brother's an engineer and my nephew's about ready to graduate. And you know, I see that that's something that I could not have done. I just didn't have the attention span to focus on this type of engineering concepts. And I give my hat off to people like that. It's really, it blows me away to, to work around people like that and see what they do writing on this glass, look at these screens and the stuff's being applied by robots, right? When you yeah. know, it's like, it's amazing. Wow. It's wild. Um, from a, a company culture standpoint, hiring process, just the nuts and bolts of your experience from having been there is, is there any element to any of that? that's like wildly different from other companies like that. That's a kind of a standalone that's uh, exclusive or specific to, to Tesla. Yes. Um, there's a, I'm going to read this because I don't want to mess it up. Yeah. And this isn't plastered everywhere, but it's a, it's an awesome phrase that is a, it reminds me of being in special operations and it may take me a while to find this, but get, because it's so cool because it literally is, uh, it, it defines what Tesla is and it talks about the risk and it reminds me when in uh, like what we did in the first Marine Special Operations Unit of the 21st century because the Raiders were a Special Operations Unit in the Pacific and their first raid was unsuccessful in a Macon Island. Uh, the president of the United States, FDR's son, was the executive officer, and they wrote a surrender note on Macon Island. And Tokyo Rose used that as propaganda across for the rest of the Pacific campaign. And um, But they dared greatly. Uh, same thing, Desert One, uh, the first uh, real mission from yeah. Army Special Operations Tier 1 unit. Disaster. Disaster. SEAL Team 6. Uh, yeah, Grenada. Grenada, 
two, two <clears throat> fatality incidences, but you, you look at these and how you develop as a nation, and um, here, here's the saying, and I love this, because this is, uh, if you ever read, read that book, uh, The Guts to Try, it's about the Desert One raid uh, to attempt to rescue the Americans from Tehran. Uh, and they wrote on the case of beer that the British SAS dropped off to the uh, guys when they came back to uh, Oman and just wrote the guts to try. They knew what, you know, <laughs> our intel had leaked some, they knew what was going on when they came back. But uh, this is what's written in our work. It says, when something is important enough, you will do it, even if the odds are not in your favor. And I'm sure if you're at Microsoft or Facebook, there's people that, you know, just are going to put in the extra effort. Uh, you know, they're using their minds. But the odds, uh, when you're talking about making robots, making an autonomous, pilotless car, a robo-taxi, you think about globally how that's going to disrupt, I mean, and how that's going to change your life. Um, it's just really a, unbelievable and amazing. So, uh, But I see people like that there, and I'm like, wow, that... That reminds me of some of the things when you talk as a SEAL uh, and as a reconnaissance Marine and special operations about never quitting. That's what that means. The odds are not in your favor. When you went to BUDS and when you went on these missions, the odds were not in our favor. And when I see these guys and they're applying that to the engineering aspect. And I mean, you see a company that started so compared to the other automotive manufacturers we're primarily automotive at this point it's it truly is shocking how how fast and from where the company is about ready to go it's just i'm just sitting there like i'm on the top of a you know the alps in switzerland just looking just like in awe of what's there yeah so what what i'm hearing through uh through that as well is that it does still make sense to buy tesla stock then so that's what I can't comment <laughs> no, I on. I own it. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to take that as a yes. Um, so what, what for you now then, uh, personally, do you plan to stay, stay with Tesla for the rest of your professional career? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's good stuff, man. Well, I, I gotta tell you the, uh, your, your story is, uh, is, is depressing. <laughs> Uh, Everybody says but it's depressingly fascinating, you know, That's it, what they uh, say. yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's remarkable in all the worst ways. Unfortunately, um, I, I wish it was more of a surprise, but unfortunately to me, it really isn't. I've, I've just heard too many of the same things and I, I wouldn't say that I've lived it. Uh, you know, my, the leadership that I had, I mean, there were some, some good ones and bad ones. None of them that, uh, are, are in, in the same category as the ones that you dealt with, fortunately for me, but um, but there's just been too many examples of, of other folks um, in our armed services that have been through similar situations for, uh, for me to have much faith in, uh, in the big picture of the DOD at this point. But um, <clears throat> I cannot thank you enough for coming and, and sharing your story. It's, uh, it, it's an incredible journey and one that uh, you know, I, I hate that you lived through, but I'm also glad that you survived it. Yeah, I think that's the silver lining in the story is, I mentioned what I'm doing. There's other of the seven of us who were accused and even larger across the company have done the Marine Special Operations Company that we were uh, professionally destroyed at that moment who have gone on and done things that are just so remarkable. That's uh, 
it's a testimony to men and women in America that that join with the right reasons and they never compromised uh, because they wanted to advance. I mean, even though like this happened when I was stationed in Camp Lejeune and I talked about people there that were, you know, making comfort based decisions and saw, okay, better not go against this wave, but these guys, you know, uh, the air force colonel that, uh, used to have that saying, you can do something or be somebody, yeah. uh, uh, he made the OODA loop, the observe or oh, yeah. side neck, but, uh, I'll think of his name here in a second. I'm just having a senior moment. He's, uh, you know, these guys decided I'm going to do something and, you look at them now, this is 15 and a half years removed and each one of them, and I look at photographs and see what their lives are. Um, it's just amazing what they have done. And when you see a lot of veterans that have had, you know, some really horrible things from one reason or another, a wide spectrum of things, these guys have, uh, it's off the charts of what they've done. And the reason I say they, because some of them, need the anonymity with what they're doing in their lives. Uh, but, uh, also, um, it's not good to be the poster boy and some of them just want the privacy because, yeah. uh, when you're alleged of being one of the guys that mass murdered some people and somebody wants to get jihad on, there's enough people in the United States, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I, I guess. Yeah. I mean, through all of it, the one positive that came out of it is that, is that ultimately the truth was able to come out and did come out and you guys, um, you know, got, got to move on and, and weren't thrown in Leavenworth, uh, you know, uh, against what, what the truth was. Yeah. But, um, thank you again for coming. Is there anything else uh, that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? A couple things real quickly. I won't be long, but, uh, non-discretionary spending is that after all entitlements, this is the department of defense is the number one line item on our federal budget what we spend the most money on and if we're not getting the results that we need people need to be held accountable people love to hear the movie in spartan the 300 uh we hold each other accountable call your congressman your congresswoman your senator and if they don't give you an answer about a similar case a one that's going on right now called the marsoc three then you know who to vote for next month or who to not vote for. If they don't care about one of the few things that's written into our constitution for, to provide for the national defense, and they don't even care about an ongoing case, get rid of them. I don't care who the other person is, don't vote for them. If neither of them do it, you need to make an example. And I appreciate you having a heart for the military, but this stuff has gone on too long. Like you've said yourself, there's too many cases and the guys and gals, the frontline foot soldiers can't fix it themselves. They need Americans to stop this, uh, you know, these war pimps who go on to work for these uh, military industrial complex from just running these guys and gals to the meat grinder. And it's got to stop. Yeah, I mean, uh, incredible point and, uh, and much appreciated. I agreed. I mean, one one case or example is too many, but... Um, you know, there, there's just, fuck, there's a, a bunch of them. Um, it, was there another point or was that the... Uh, that was, the, so the MARSOC 3 is the current ongoing yeah. case. They're going to court martial all three of these guys for defending themselves against a, a guy who attacked, surrounded him with seven of his buddies, clubbed him, they used one punch. They're going to trial for homicide, all three of them, to include the guy that was punched in the face twice 
January 2024. Uh, their case has been going on at that time by January for four years. Uh, this is un-American. Uh, and you read it, the details of their case. They tried to have a gag order put on them and all the details. Their defense attorneys threatened, the military defense attorneys threatened. The case thrown out. Now it's been uh, appealed and they're still going after them. So uh, this, the bigger implication is you won't be able to defend yourself if, if our military personnel can't even defend themselves and apply what they were trained to as far as being a, the minimal amount of force, everything they were taught from boot camp to being a special operations breacher, sniper, to use the minimal amount of force to defeat the threat, but uh, really makes me uh, disgusted. It's yeah. still going on. Amen. So you uh, you heard the man, so uh, follow it. Uh, anything else? That's all. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks Thanks again for coming. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, for you, the listener, I hope that, uh, that this was, if not eye-opening, uh, at least, you know, confirmed – uh, you know, your thought process and, and opinion slash feelings on uh, what what needs to take place and transpire in this country, um, you know, for uh, for it to be where it needs to be. So uh, if you don't agree with that or you didn't enjoy it, you can feel free to choke yourself as always. Uh, I do appreciate your support show after show. If, if not for you, we would not be able to bring you these um, insightful and, uh, and incredible stories of, of journeys of uh, heroes such as uh, Filthy Fred, which I, I do need to. I don't know if you want to share why, where you got, where that name came from. It uh, came from one of the buddies. I'm actually staying uh, with him here in uh, Fort Worth, uh, but um, we were in Iraq and just going after the enemy. And uh, he was really complaining because he's like, "Man, what stinks so bad?" And uh, <laughs> I. I would take my socks off and lay them over my boots to dry out. But, you know, we were just going mission after mission. And I would say some of the, he was a pilot. I was the force recon platoon commander. So uh, every aspect of the planning I was involved in, some of the pilots didn't have to do it. So I didn't quite have as much time. And hygiene was not the the number one priority of any special operator. And so, uh, you know, the name kind of stuck, unfortunately, and <laughs> literally, uh, filthy Fred. So. Yeah, I thought it was going to have something to do with a uh, bath bathhouse in Thailand or something. Like, yeah. You may know <laughs> about that as well. Uh, well, that's good stuff. Uh, I, I hope that uh, everybody was uh, listening long enough to catch that last little tidbit. But uh, thank you again for your support. I appreciate it. And until next time, this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. 
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.